At Parker, our purpose is simple. We want to make the world a better place. By working more efficiently. By using more sustainable practices. By developing better technologies. We keep moving forward. With each new idea, innovation, and partnership, we're one step closer to fulfilling our purpose every single day. To find out more, visit parker.com slash purpose. Parker, engineering your success. As humans, we're naturally driven by the search for better. But when it comes to hiring, the best way to search for a candidate isn't to search at all. Don't search, match with Indeed. When I was looking to hire someone, it was so slow and overwhelming. I wish I had used Indeed. If you need to hire, you need Indeed. Indeed is your matching and hiring platform with over 350 million global monthly visitors, according to Indeed data, and a matching engine that helps you find quality candidates fast. Ditch the busy work. Use Indeed for scheduling, screening, and messaging so you can connect with candidates faster. And Indeed doesn't just help you hire faster. 93% of employers agree Indeed delivers the highest quality matches compared to other job sites, according to a recent Indeed survey. And listeners of this show will get a $75 sponsored job credit to get your jobs more visibility at Indeed.com slash podcast. That's Indeed.com slash podcast. Terms and conditions apply. Hello, my name is John Strykermeyer. Welcome to SOGCAST number 22. Today we have an interesting guest, and uh, we we're, our interviews are focusing on SOG-related adventures from the Vietnam War, where we had the eight-year secret war under the aegis of the Military Assistance Command of Vietnam. And uh, also, we always thank Jocko Willing Productions for making these recordings possible to record the history uh, from our unique niche uh, during the Vietnam War. And I'm reading here, um, he jumped up, shooting into the tree line, running forward and hoping someone was following. In a ragged line, they wore the well and the walking wounded, their shot up comrades providing covering fire Fleeting thoughts struck him as he ran forward. How easy it was to get through the elephant grass since most of it had been neatly mowed by bullet skies. How little noise there was except the blood rushing in his ears. How the specks of fire in front of him looked almost beautiful even though he knew them to be muzzle flashes. How his legs seemed to carry him impossible distances with each stride. And yet, far away, the tree line continued to be. How could the Montagnards run faster than he? Yet here they were, surrounding him, firing as they ran, their faces contorted with effort. In front of him went two, grinning back at him, when he shouted at them to get out of his way. One stumbled, coughed a great gout of bright red blood. The other took his place. And what was this? A tree? It took a moment to realize that he was out of the open. All around him were scenes of carnage pieces of corpses draped 
in abandoned half in and half out of collapsed bunkers. Steam rising from torsos ripped apart by the blast. And the people were still shooting at him. The artillery hadn't killed them all. Not nearly. There, a foxhole, he had run completely by. A rifle muzzle was protruding from it, firing at his people. He pulled an M26 grenade from its keeper, yanked the pin, and let the spoon fly. Training more, training now took over. Let it cook off, count 1,000, two 1,000, pop it down the hole, take cover. In two seconds, not enough time for a man in the hole to find it and throw it out. It goes off, blowing the camouflage cover off the hole and filling the air with black smoke of high explosive. Nobody could live through that. But better make sure. Jump up, point the M16 down at the hole, look into the muzzle of an AK-47 being held by a very much alive, if somewhat explosive, adled NVA soldier. Jesus! Finger locks down on the trigger. 20 rounds of 5.56 into him, rendering a human into a pile of bloody rags. This is from a book that we call Fiction, Days of Fire, written by John F. Mullins. One of 14 books he's written, 12 of which have been published, two of which are at the print shop getting ready to come out. And today I want to welcome John Mullins to the show. And even though it's fiction, John, this has a feel of you having been there a little bit. So <laughs> take us back to start off with this scene. It's just surreal. You captured that combat, your yards, and... Uh, Take us to that day where you were, please. It was one of those days where you you want to fight because I'd been out there for days and days and days and got nothing other than cut some sniper rounds. And when one of my yards said, told me, oh, Trung Wee points up to this hill and said, Bo Buku VC, I said, let's go get them. Sort of a dumbass move, I will will admit. But uh, once we did start up that hill, it was a matter of you got to keep going or you, you might get killed Let's get, well, if you're going. If you stay where you are, you're definitely going to get killed. You go back down the hill, you're going to get killed. <laughs> so the choice was fairly easy. All right. So at that time, um, uh, you had a total of three tours of duty in Vietnam with special forces at different assignments and you had that one extension for your last tour of duty so this was your second tour of duty but the action you've captured in your book here I just thought it was compelling to at least get us started and uh, talk a little bit about during your second time you were working at an aid camp and you're on patrol and I just loved the way you captured that moment in time and uh so a little bit about where the A camp was. At that point, you were first lieutenant? First lieutenant, right. Yes. You've mm -hmm. been promoted by then. And uh, just fill us in a little bit about that scenery, and then uh, we'll take it from there, because that's you captured that combat. 
The camp itself was called uh, Venton, uh, and, and that was because it was in the Venton Valley up in the central highlands of Vietnam. Uh, it was a horrible place for a camp to be because you were down in the bottom of the valley, mountains all around you. They could shoot down into your camp any time they wanted to. The entire camp was built underground, concreted over. The only thing that remained above ground was the latrine. Uh, <laughs> so it was always fun to be sitting on there doing your business and hear boom and know that that's a mortar going off. So how uh, far away was the nearest uh, trench line you could dive into? Uh, within within feet. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> uh, so you had that experience a couple times too, I assume. Yes, I did. Oh. <laughs> uh, nothing like being on the on the uh, crapper and then hear that round get dropped into a mortar tube. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, it's a, yeah, it definitely <laughs> recognizes the sound. Oh, well, okay. Um, if you don't mind, I'd like to um, uh, flash forward to when you returned to Vietnam for the third time. And uh, I think that was 1969. And you come 68. back. 68. And then um, you returned to Vietnam. Uh, did they require you to go through the in-country training at that point? Or did you just yes, check in the headquarters? Yeah. Yeah. You did the in-country training. Yeah, I still had to go through the, uh, what they call it, the cock course at that time. Right. Uh, yeah, I still had to do it. Pissed me off, as you can imagine, after <laughs> yeah, this being had my third tour. Previously. Yeah, but uh, you, you do what you do. Bureaucracy, as, as we all know. Well, uh, and they weren't necessarily nonchalant towards the duty. I mean, you earned how many silver stars and how many purple hearts during the first two tours of duty? The first two tours of duty, I got one silver star, one purple heart. Uh, The second tour of duty, I got another silver star and avoided getting any purple hearts. I was tired of that. Yeah, we'll come back to the other purple heart a little bit later, but (laughs) we got to get into the SOG stuff first because this is what our viewers tune us in for. So you go through the in-country training, and then from there... Um, how do you hear, how do you hear about SOG or had you heard about it? What was the process that went through your mind that eventually landed you going to Longton for a very unique assignment there, which again, it's another first that we've been talking about. SOG was never one of those things that you didn't hear about in special forces. <laughs> I mean, everybody pretty much knew what was going on. Uh, and I would, I just hadn't had the opportunity. I always more thought I wanted to go to SOG. So when I was on the way back over and Mark Ponzillo, uh, Major Mark Ponzillo, old friend, uh, told me that he was going to SOG and I should come with him, I said, okay, I'm ready to go. Uh, where <laughs> we went, a long time. Uh, so at the in-country train, like in our case, again, we were there in 68, this is May for us. And when we went through the in-country at the end of it, I forget, some little guy comes out, hey, we're looking for volunteers. And Johnny McIntyre goes, for what? And he says, well, can't say. Either you're in or you're out. <laughs> and of course, yep. we signed up. Of course, 1968, the movie, the Green Berets with the Duke had been out for a while. And uh, in fact, that's the first time we saw it was there at the training group. I mean, the headquarters for 5th Special Forces Group. So... Um, your buddy takes you there and you go down. If you explain a little bit about Longton, because by that point, Longton had been a SOG base, but they hadn't formally started the 1-0 school yet. 
that came a little bit later, but it was there nonetheless because I don't know anything about it. You were there. What was going on at Long Tom at that time? Yeah, it was, uh, other than my project, uh, it was mostly the uh, the one zero, uh, getting everybody ready for the one zero. Um, but my project was called Borden. Uh, so it got a nickname, of course, that we were doing the milk run. Um uh, <laughs> But uh, this was a notional project. It was uh, de- specifically designed to su- spread hate and discontent in the rural areas of the North Vietnamese. And that all across the fence, either in Cambodia or Laos. Cambodia or North- Laos, and before the the bombing hell of uh, 68. Right, November uh, 68, Johnson had November the bombing 68, hall. yeah. Uh, when we couldn't fly there anymore, uh, we'd been going into North Vietnam. No kidding. So how, um, again, excuse my complete ignorance, because this is the first time I've heard of that. And that's why I like having you here amongst the other first. But um, so how would that program work? How would you recruit people first? Because I'm assuming you're recruiting uh, former Viet Cong, NVA, cadre or soldiers. They come in and then through some kind of a vetting process, you all determine, here's a candidate with somebody we could work with. If we talk to them about our program, our values, maybe we can get them to work for us. And then if they agreed, you trained them up. And then once you're done training, what did they do? <laughs> <laughs> yeah, it was, uh, we, we got them out of POW camps. Okay. Uh, they, uh, we would go around and do interviews. Uh, and uh, the, of course, this was Vietnamese uh, that was also involved in the project, and he would, he would scout them out and tell who were possibilities, who weren't. Uh, once he'd picked them, uh, we'd take them up to take them up to Long Ton and put them in the compound there, and start their training and start their indoctrination. One of the best ways we had to show them that they had been steadily lied to because they had been told that the Americans had wrecked the entire country, uh, everything, people were starving, and so forth and so on. We'd take them down to Saigon. Oh, is that right? Yeah. A little positive psyops. Yeah, let them, let them take them. Yeah, obviously, we, we, weren't, we kept a close eye on them. Sure. But, uh, but they saw all the sicklos crowding the streets and the street vendors, and everybody looked happy. And they realized it was like a light bulb going off to them. We've been lied to all this time. Uh, so they were much more amenable. To so you could say it was dramatically different than living in Hanoi or in the pits of a Viet Cong village. Vastly. Lying to people. Vastly, yeah. Uh, I never thought about that. That's a great tool, PSYOPs, at its best. Yeah, it worked. Yeah. Okay, so then uh, what would be the general training cycle? Would it depend on the individuals? Is that how you, pretty much the constant assessment between you and your counterparts? Yeah, it's pretty much constant, uh, constant check. Uh, and the, I will say this for the Vietnamese officers we had. They were very smart, and they could tell a liar in a heartbeat. Or we couldn't. A guy could probably lie to you, and you'd nod there and say, yep, yep. Uh, so the ones that we didn't want were weaned out, and they went back to the POW camps. Uh, the ones that we did want that showed some potential, then we started training them on what they would do once they were reinserted into, into denied areas. 
Sure, because I know we did the same thing with our team. When it got wiped out, we had to recruit people, and we just turned it over to our zero one, the Vietnamese team leader, and our interpreter, <clears throat> and they had a couple of people on the team. They would vet anybody that came on the team, and then we'd run through our security check, whatever that was, mm-hmm. and we hired four new people right away. Yeah, I mean, right away, meaning a few within a few weeks, and uh, but to trust our counterparts to do the job too. Oh, indeed. And like yeah. you said, on an instinctual thing, I I knew that they were better than that. <laughs> so you guys vet them, and we never had a problem, at least yeah. on our team. And, and eventually, you sound like you had a lot of success there too. Yeah, we did. Uh, we never had. Uh, we we only had one that I would say might have been a double, uh, but uh, but we put him into an area. Put him inserted him into an area where he could do the most harm by telling all the lies we had fed him. <laughs> so then, um, what would be the next step once trained? Then uh, how would you pick a target area and then insertion would be by helicopter? Would they walk in or what would the uh, next step be? No, it's too far to walk. Right. Uh, so it was either by helicopter or we parachuted the man. Oh no, kidding. Yeah. And would they be like static line or static line. static line? Static line jump, yeah. Okay, and then, uh, so this is 68? 68, 68 and 69, yeah. And that program was successful at some point. You said you had Very some results? Successful. Yeah, we, we got intel back, uh, mostly signal intelligence, uh, that there was at least a division of North Vietnamese wandering around somewhere up around the Ho, Ho Chi Minh Trail trying to find all these infiltrators who were pre- passing information back to us. They weren't, but, uh, right. but that's okay. Sure. And when, you're, when your people went in, when they did go in, if did they, were they looking to make contact? So they no. would talk to people? What would they be when they were on the ground, and how they long were, would they be in? They were supposed to just uh, provide intel with the little radios that we gave them, provide intel. Right. We very seldom got any intel. They were tumbled within days. Of, uh, of insertion. No kidding. Yeah. Wow. They had a pretty good net over across the border. They, you, you didn't just wander around there. No. And so were you able to get any back? No. No kidding. Not a one. All right. And so um, this program goes on for a while. Then at some point, you're, you learn about or hear about a project that was probably one of the most successful during the Vietnam War, although there was a degree of controversy attached to the Phoenix Project. <laughs> that That is saying it nicely, yes. <laughs> but so, again, because uh, I heard about it tangentially only after my second tour of duty, or mm-hmm. if I knew about it on my first tour, it was just like an enigma for us. Mm-hmm. So not only did I not hear about your program from Long Tong, but we didn't know about the Phoenix Project. But you did. And again, this is your third tour of duty. So you're really savvy, in-country, you know more people. And uh, so what's your introduction to the Phoenix Project? I had always known about the Phoenix Program back uh, that it had various names. It had been going on for years. But uh, the, the Vietnamese decided to name it Phung Hoa. Uh, Phung Hoa is Phoenix right. in, in English. Uh, and that was, the, that was the dragon, or the bird rather, that immolated itself every year and then came back stronger. And that was the idea sure. of it. 
so they, our purpose was to, officially, was to neutralize the Viet Cong infrastructure. In country? In country, yeah. We never operated out of country, no. not in Phoenix, no. And the, one of the key points here that is often overlooked, that by the time you're talking about here, uh, which would be 68, 69, Mm-hmm. And and the Phoenix problem program ran from sixty seven to seventy two, I believe. Yeah. Um, what aspect was there? The North Vietnamese government or army would always have cadre or a staff communist agent who would be present with the Viet Cong, working different districts. How could you just break that down a little bit further, too? Yeah, it, was, it wasn't It was just the, the North Vietnamese didn't trust anybody, certainly from the South. Right. Uh, so, yeah, they would put people with uh, the, the village chiefs, these province chiefs, uh, to make sure that they towed the party line. But these were hardcore Viet Cong in the first place. So it was, it was sort of a conflict between the two because they, oh, yeah. the guys were, uh, we'd get... Uh, one of the one of the higher ups, and we'd talk to them about that, and they would show their anger at being not trusted by their North Vietnamese allies. Uh, so yeah, it, it definitely was some uh, was some real problems for. But that's them. also an accurate reflection on the North Vietnamese communists who wanted to control everything South, and on one hand. Things are being portrayed to the media about, oh, the Viet Cong, the local farmers that farm by day, plow by day, but at night they go out and they're good soldiers. Now, there were some that left over from the uh, French Indochina War, mm-hmm. and some of those Viet Cong units were good. But, yes, they were. But after the French left, the communists dominated North Vietnam, and they wanted to dominate the whole country south. Exactly. And when their people came south, to work with little villages and the people therein, there is that hostility that we don't hear about much. No. And you saw it firsthand. Oh, yeah. Yeah, very definitely. When when they first started up, uh, most of the people who were put in down into, into the south were guys who had been Viet Cong or Viet men, I should say, right, yeah. uh, during the French Indochina War. Um, and knew the country and knew the people there, so they were they were put into those areas deliberately because of that, because of their knowledge. But the lack of trust came later on, uh, and the North Vietnamese started sending their cadre in there. And, yeah, it created some hate and discontent. Indeed. And were you able to play play upon that a little bit? when you're... We played upon it a lot. Uh, we'd, uh, we would get these guys, and... Before I go into that, though, the one of the things I want to clarify sure, has been so much nonsense about the Phoenix program, about how it was an assassination program. Uh, we were going in there and killing people willy-nilly. Uh, it was anything but that. Uh, one thing, uh, you can't get information off a dead man. That's a little difficult, even today. Very difficult, unless you've got a pocket letter <laughs> uh, that you can use, maybe some documents. But uh, but that's that's betting on the come. Indeed. So my biggest problem was keeping them alive, uh, because my crew were their families had been policed up during Tet 68 and buried in the sand dunes outside Hue. 
So they had a grudge, uh, and they wanted to kill them all. Sure. Understandable. And that's why, uh, uh, that brings us back to a basic question I, I didn't ask you first. Where did you start with the, when you entered the Phoenix Project? You're away, which is I-Corps, which is the northern part of mm-hmm. South Vietnam. And then later you also picked up some responsibilities in Quang Tri province, mm-hmm. which was further to the northeast of Way. For, for the, further north, yeah. North, yes, sir. Mm-hmm. And um, so what would be the... Um, setup for you as a phoenix officer there would it be some command and control officers how many people are there and then how many counterparts and then the good stuff where phoenix would identify through their rapport with local citizens to say there's a vietcom he's a vietcom then you all would work to bring him in capture him keep him alive talk to him mm-hmm. interrogate them to get intel and yes. then to eventually to help change their thinking or to put them in, incarcerate them. Yes, exactly. So if you could get a little bit of that structure, because again, this is, I'm so excited about interviewing you today was because this is my first insight for real. We had guys that were with us say, yeah, I was in the Phoenix Project. Well, what was it? Well, uh, 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 they do, <laughs> um, you know, mumble mouth. Yeah. But now 50 years later, we can talk about it a little bit further and they get it on the record with the straight, skivvy from somebody who was there so if you don't mind it's a little bit more of the structure and then maybe one or two of your successes where you go out and get joe bip the rag man who you knows Viet Cong. he comes in you do some of your psyops and say hey by the way you know we're good people here it's different than the way the communists are and you flip them mm-hmm. and they work for you a little bit and take it from there please yeah the the structure first off we got uh, a lot of our intel off of sigant uh, right. We were tied into virtually everybody who p- could provide us in. And you were working with ASA at the time, I assume. Working with ASA, working with uh, with some uh, what were called uh, province intelligence officers that were fresh out of uh, Fort Holabird, <laughs> who uh, who were a little bit out of their uh, little l- bit out of their element. A little bit out of their. And element. just for the record, the ASA was the Army Security Agency. Yeah. That's the forerunner of the NSA, today's NSA, yep. uh, which has generated a few headlines in recent years through its notoriety. But the <laughs> ASA really was on our side. They did gain valuable uh, intel, both off of Signal, and they had their people, that Americans that were trained in a language, mm-hmm. monitored their frequencies, and from that, they could give you intel. Yes, And so exactly. take it from there, how you would get... And we'd get intel from the province, uh, the province chiefs uh, in these places, because they had their own intel net out too. The Vietnamese province chiefs um, that uh, that were certainly maintaining knowledge of who the, who the VC were, and where they were, and what what the capabilities were. Uh, so we'd get that intel, and we put it all together, and anything else that we could get. And then we would specifically target somebody or a bunch of somebodies. And just for another uh, course of background here, just for listeners who may not be familiar, uh, early at the end of January, early February 1968, it was the historic Tet Offensive. Mm-hmm. Tet is the annual New Year event in Vietnam. In 1968, the Congress and the Americans agreed that there would be a truce during the Tet. Of course, the communists being the lying dogs that they are, 
um, lied and they launched their biggest offensive during the war at that point. And they had Viet Cong, NVA had infiltrated into the country, attacked major bases, embassies. And in a way, we had the Way Massacre, where the NVA came into the historic citadel area of Way and they killed uh, or took anybody who was educated, priests, uh, people who were of authority, mayors, people who were the infrastructure of a successful, thriving community, took them out and killed them. And this, of course, again, the media did not give this much ink as it should have been. And this was a massacre. It was, it was. the Way Massacre. And I forget, what was the, the projected body count on that? Oh, I don't remember, but it was astronomical. It was uh, several thousand at least. Oh, yeah, definitely. And uh, They were digging bodies out of, the, out of the sand dunes for months. Yes, sir. And so with that said, that was also something that you could use when you're talking to the survivors in the villages. You could use that, and then they would help pinpoint the Viet Cong and the NVA cadre that were in your areas of operation there. Yeah, the hardest part was to convince somebody, say, in a village, that we could protect them because they had been, uh, as you so aptly said, terrorized. Uh, so once we convinced them, uh, then we got good intel and we could move up the chain. We get a roadrunner, somebody who is carrying messages one way or the other. We get him, we find out who the messages are coming from. Uh, we take that one out. Uh, he tells us then who the messages uh, were generated from, and it goes on and on and on until we get up to the people who at the highest level, district chiefs were, uh, and of course they had a province chief, but the district chiefs were our primary target. And uh, with, with that, you would remove them and then incarcerate them and or try to flip them first? Would yeah, that no. would there always be the flip, or does it depend on the degree of uh, notoriety that Depen they had? We'd try to get immediate intel off of them, um, but, uh, but we were pretty restricted from that. We had to turn them in within a few days. Right. Uh, so the intel was the important part to us. Give us the intel, who, is, who else is in this chain, where are they, how well are they guarded, uh, and then formulate another operation off of that. Uh, they would pull them away from us uh, pretty quickly. The Vietnamese government would pull them away from us pretty quickly and put them, put them down in Hong Kong. Is that right? Yeah. And then um, you also, your area of operation was expanded to include Quang Tri. Yeah. And then how did that go? And then, again, was it like a gradual thing, one village at a time, as you spread out your basically, network, your intel network? Basically one village at a time, yeah. And... I just was there one or two major successes where you get the the village chieftain or somebody who's like a, a key player in the village who you know he's hardcore Viet Cong, but you bring him in, you capture him, you talk to him, you interrogate him. There's different methods, but you interrogate him in a regular interrogation, like mano a mano, mm -hmm. and then you begin to see, maybe we can change this guy. So was there a couple of success stories where there were some people you brought in like that? There were, and a large part of that was because of the aforementioned Tet 68 when basically the Viet Cong was decimated. Uh, they were shot to pieces. Uh, they were, 
they were pissed, the survivors, because the North Vietnamese hadn't given them the support that they'd been promised. So <laughs> they another uh, little fact we never hear about. Oh yeah, yeah. They they weren't happy about that, and uh, it, and it gets to the stage where you'd pick somebody up. Oh God, I'm glad to see you guys. <laughs> Not in so many words. Right. But. Sure. Yeah. But again, that was a critical part of the operation. You flipped them. Yes. They didn't work for you. And as, there, as you went up that chain of command, there's a couple of cases where uh, that stick out in your mind. You said, hey, we've got new union confusion here. And now he's working with us, and we're able to get other high-ranking Viet Cong. And if, you know you couldn't flip them, but you get them out of the village, yes. out of the province, into a jail, and then you would be able to pacify the village and the village could thrive, get back to living without the communist domination, which was the, one of the goals of the Phoenix Project. Indeed. I, I think one of my favorites is uh, the time when a North Vietnamese battalion came down the Ho Chi Minh Trail, uh, came in through the Ashau Valley, and were lost for two weeks. Lost? Lost. <laughs> there were no more trail watchers. There were no more support supplies where there was nobody else there to support them because we'd policed them all up. No. <laughs> <laughs> so we vectored in. The, we got how the intel. That, how did that work? I mean, take it from, that, that's amazing. Okay, gonna, let me pull my mind back together here a little bit. So talk to me a little bit more about that. That sounds like an amazing success story. It was, It certainly it was my best one. There's no question about it. Oh I really God. liked it even better when I was able to call <laughs> up the 101st that was uh -huh. operating in the area sure. and tell them where they were. And uh, they went in and just annihilated that battalion. Wow. Uh, so how that start then? So you had worked on some local people. They help you, and they say, hey, by the way, you should talk to this guy who may know about this. Essentially, and of course, we still had the intel coming in from, from ASA. all NSA and, and the Vietnamese. Did uh, you ever get anything good from the CIA that was no. really usable? No. no, of course not. Okay, no. just want to get that for the record. No, <laughs> <laughs> certainly not. They always wanted to get stuff from us, but... Uh. Yeah, no, they uh, they were far too high level to speak to a mere captain. Indeed, indeed. <laughs> So, okay, face it, so you get somebody who takes you to somebody, then what happened? Um, the, uh, I'm sorry. You were talking about the 101st, the oh, battalion the that came down, and you were able to get an intel network that let you know they're coming, mm -hmm. and then your trail watchers disappeared, and then you get the 101st who hit it with their gunships yeah. and... Uh, did they use ground troops also? Was it a yeah, they used ground effort? troops okay. as well. Yeah. So, yeah, just tell me a little bit more if you can. Yeah, it's it's, just, I don't know that much about about the operation itself. I just knew that it happened. You just got it started. Yeah. Yeah, yeah you're uh, the action point. <laughs> <laughs> Here's the intel. Here's where they are. Go kill those commies. And they did. Yeah, and they did. <laughs> the, uh, the other one was up in Quang Tri <clears throat> province uh, where we got the province chief. Uh, and that was the big kahuna for the whole thing. Wow. He's the one who ran everything. And he was another one who was totally disgruntled with the way he had been treated. You were able to flip him. Oh, he was, he was, he was a gold mine. <laughs> <laughs> well, that's amazing. So then was there a success story from him? Because 
through him cooperating, then you go out and get more of the Viet Cong, and then you knew who the NVA cadre were also that are coming into the village. Yes, exactly. And in most cases, they were so paranoid that they were surrounded by platoons of guards, uh, so there was no capturing them. Oh, is that right? Yeah, it was, it was direct assault. Oh, okay. So how uh, so then you would work that with you would coordinate that with any of the A camps or with the hundred and first or no. other units then or just no it was my you proof. would know identify them and move on no it was my crew that did it oh that right yeah so um, just again for our listeners crew is the action arm mm-hmm. of the Phoenix Project yes and what exactly does that mean and how does that shape out like once you all develop the intel through your interrogations then they go out. Mm-hmm. And uh, what? through the provincial reconnaissance units, basically it is uh, it it's it's not a military operation. It's actually a police operation, uh, and they work very very closely with the director general of national police. Uh, but these guys were uh, they were always from the area. There's no outsiders. Uh, we wanted to make sure of that. Sure. Uh, and we the. They were very, very well trained through a succession of Pru advisors who had come before me. And I trusted them with my life. Uh, did it many times. Uh, I was the only American out there, so I pretty much had to trust them. Well, yeah, and also I, I think this is uh, a reflection of your character. I think that um, the Phoenix Program directors tried to discourage young captains or first lieutenants from actually going to the field and by this time this is your third tour of duty you'd seen it you had your silver star purple heart and you went out with them yeah. which was a unique aspect of that so your modesty hats on if you just take that off for a minute what it was like how would you approach it would you be with two or three of the guys just go into a village at night or how would you work that it would depend on the target uh, sometimes we could go by stealth and get into a village, get the person we wanted, snatch them, and come back out. Uh, other times it was full-scale assault, uh, anywhere from a platoon up to a company. That large? Yeah. Whoa. So and then who? that would be uh, South Vietnamese soldiers working with you all then? or the No, it was strictly the Peru. I had a 120-man Peru detachment. Uh, and they were extremely good soldiers. And who trained them up to be so? The other Pru advisors who had come before me. And those were all SF? All SF. Wow. I never I never realized, well, again, there's no book you can trust no. that I've read to date. <laughs> no. And um, I didn't realize you had that kind of training, that kind of manpower. Mm-hmm. Wow. Okay, so um, as it... You were in that program for how long? Is there any other little sidebars or issues? Did you get wounded on any of those operations or get a little shrapnel for good luck during some of those things where you're just hanging out with the local PRU lads? <laughs> no, I, uh, I got wounded three more times uh, while, really? I was, while I was out with them. <laughs> uh, but we had, I had a problem uh, because we were. it wasn't just that they didn't want us out there with them. We were told absolutely it's a career buster if we find that you have been out on an operation with the crew. Now, that wasn't going to work, working for me. Right. Uh, that, so 
I went out. Yeah, I'm 10 years in the Army, okay, by then, and, uh, you know, I like it, but it ain't my life. So I went out with the pro. Yeah, but it was also a critical element to you having success in the field, and it's also an incredible uh, builder of character and, like, esprit de corps between you and the men you're working with. Instead of just saying, hey— this platoon, go on out and take these guys out. You're like there with them. Exactly. And they can see you're serious. And then would there be, so that's one side of it. And then what about the hearts and minds side? Did you have uh, SF medics come in, do the village type uh, working no. with, or how would no, there be that, any other uh, that, heart no, and we, soul kind of thing? We pretty much kept ourselves uh, right. on it. Uh, Everybody was scared shitless of the proof because of all the rumors that had gone around, and I liked it that way uh, because we didn't get uh, we we didn't get hassled from the from the Vietnamese certainly, right? Uh, and we didn't get had too much hassled from all the American civilians that were running around thinking that they knew exactly how to win the war. And and at some point. The command shifted to cords, and and when the Phoenix Project was under cords, first, if you could explain what cords was, and then did that have an impact on the Phoenix Project? Big impact. Um, basically, uh, it was one day in January of seventy that uh, I got a Twix a, a telephonic uh, top secret combo. Yeah. Yeah, uh, that said, pack your bags. You're leaving. Uh, really? Oh yeah. Uh, and everybody, every other advisor, pro advisors in the country got the same twigs. Uh, they shut us, shut us out. This was shortly after, say, Senator J. William Fulbright got up on the floor of the Senate and denounced the Phoenix program as being an assassination program and so forth, and the military. Didn't want uh, didn't want their names uh, attached to it, so basically we were thrown out of Vietnam, told we could never go back. Wow! So, but the program continued. So, who do you it learn? Continued. Later? It went to some civilians, uh, and I don't know it, but what I've heard is the the efficiency of it went completely in the toilet. And at that point, was John Paul Van still around to work with the Cords program? Because oh, I know that he was, yes. boss, but he was down south. Yeah, he was down south, but yeah, everybody knew John Paul Vance. And so was that a negative uh, side of that? Was that part of, I don't know if you know or not, but that's one of the names that rings out because of Cords, his years there. He mm -hmm. did a lot of good, but changing, gutting the Phoenix program, that doesn't sound like a good idea to me. No, it was a terrible idea. Yeah, but it was done done for political reasons, and political reasons seldom uh, are good reasons for right. anything. And then, um, just for the record, I think that we talked about um, the Phoenix Project. There were probably over eighty one thousand Viet Cong, and maybe a few NVA for good luck, mm -hmm. who were quote neutralized, mm -hmm. and that would mean people who came over to our side or were incarcerated or who did die in some combat between PRU units and your agents. Yes. And on like the portrayal where um, there was um, people who would go out and 
uh, say a villager had a grudge with another villager and say, well, I'm with the PRU. They would go out and just, I'll just go kill somebody today. Yeah. And with you working, you knew who your people were. You knew what the targets were. So I assume, but I guess the direct question would be, was there abuses? And if they were, did you hear about it? And what would be done? There were attempted abuses, uh, at least when I was there. Sure. Uh, And those came from the Vietnamese. Right. Uh, Somebody wanted, uh, wanted, somebody had been hurt in a business transaction. Uh, somebody had, uh, somebody's wife had gone run off with somebody else. So they, you know, the, the drama is, is always there. It doesn't matter if you're in the middle of war or not. Right. So they would attempt to insert information on their enemy into the program. And you had some of these young lieutenants who would take it. You know, that, yeah, that's probably what happened. We ought to tell them tell the Phoenix guys, then uh, they can get this guy. We always double-checked everything that we got from anybody yeah. uh, to make damn sure that we were getting the wrong, getting the right people because that would have destroyed the program uh, right from the beginning. Nobody would have trusted us anymore. Nobody would have given us intel. Uh, it would have been totally ineffective. And I think in some cases that's what they wanted. Well, of course, and I... It's very tempting to think that somebody would leak something like that to a senator who at that time was a very powerful force in the U.S. Senate. Indeed so. With mouse of a forethought, which is this is one way to hurt a program that's kicking our ass in Vietnam. Sure. Even though nobody knew about it. (laughs) You guys did a great job. Um, So um, was there any uh, side notes to that, that uh, follow-ups for the Phoenix Project as we wrap up this part of the conversation on that? Any other thoughts? I mean, had they not, J. William Fulbright, had not put the kibosh to this and heard it, and then, of course, the subsequent publicity, a lot erroneous in nature, most erroneous, um, would there, what was your project, how successful could that have been? Would that have been a major impact? Because this is 1970. Mm-hmm. And as you said, which again, facts that weren't reported well, was the Viet Cong ranks were decimated they were. during the Tet Offensive. And by 69 and 70, they were still hurt. And you guys, with the Phoenix Project, or whoever Viet Cong or left, or the new ones coming in, you knew them, neutralized them one way or the other. Yeah, a couple may have died along the way. That's good. Best commie, my favorite kind of commie is a dead commie. <laughs> I don't know about you, John, but I'm biased that way. And then um, um, I'm just trying to think if there is another aspect to that. Well, there and is there an is... aspect to it, and that is uh, the aforementioned Viet Cong, who yes. we had pretty much policed up, were being replaced by North Vietnamese, and we were going after them. Uh, and frankly, they weren't all that de rigueur North Vietnamese. Uh, oh, is that were, right? Oh, yeah. Yeah, we'd get them, uh, we'd, uh, and they were scared shit of the Prue anyway. Sure. Uh, they, they figured that the moment that uh, they got in the Prue, they were dead man. Uh, and when they found out, no, that wasn't going to happen, they realized they'd been lied to, too. So here again is a major fundamental difference that was never reported, not written about to the best of my knowledge. If it was, I still haven't read the book. 
I'm not going to read it until you tell me I should read it. Um, and uh, that actual fact was the trend in Vietnam War at that time. We had hurt them, and there was a you know we were we were winning the war, mm-hmm. and you're hurting them at the infrastructure level, and with the North Vietnamese putting their people in there, those are strangers coming into a village that you all have won the hearts and minds, helped to get them back on their feet as a thriving village without the communist thugs around to intimidate them. And the only way people go along with the communists is the communists are there with their guns. Yeah, exactly. And then the village people is where we got a lot of our intel, the straightforward intel at that point, because that exactly that had happened. Somebody, some guy had come in there and started bullying everybody and eyeing the women. And yeah. They, uh, so somebody would find a reason to talk to somebody else who they knew were talking to somebody else, and we'd get the intel, and we'd, uh, we'd go in and take them. Yeah, I mean, even with the, um, with the way massacre, I mean, yes, a lot of people were killed, but a lot of women mm-hmm. and boys were terribly brutalized first. Oh, indeed. And raped pillaged, plundered, and um, then just killed and murdered. Yeah. Like the typical way, in the tradition of Joseph Stalin, Mao Testong, the boys. Yep. Yes, sir. And yeah. again, oh, I don't know why our media just didn't get around to reporting that side of it very much. Because the media by then had turned completely against, uh, you know, you had Walter Cronkite. Uncle Walt. Yeah, going through and saying the war is lost. Uh, and people started believing that. You had a very strong anti-war movement from all the draft dodgers mostly uh, here in the United States, and uh, we had politicians running scared. And then also we should point out that the communists did have some people that were motivating people into the anti-war movement. Oh, God, yes. There was support for it, and again, I don't know if much has been written about that, uh, I know Mark Levin talks about it sometimes these days, mm-hmm. but again, there are shorter books about that. But getting back to what we're dealing with in Vietnam, the tide was positive. Oh, indeed. And well, by yanking perfect, you out, perfect example please. is when I took over Quang Tri Province, uh, I had to move between Hue and uh, and up in Quang Tri. Uh, so was that I'd, Highway One? Yeah, Highway yeah. One. So I'd hop in my jeep alone. Um, carry a gun, of course, but I'd drive up there, drive back, never an issue. That's the street without joy. Right. Uh, (laughs) From the book Street Without Joy, which documented how the Viet Minh decimated the French on the street without joy. Mm -hmm. And just for a little personal sidebar here, from FOB1 to Way, it was 10 miles. Mm -hmm. And we drove up there several times. And we had heard about the Marines getting ambushed sometimes going up, but we never had an incident. We yeah. always carried our car 15, and but still, yeah, the, the local villages knew who we were. Sure. The war was won at that point, uh, and it's, it's been, and I've sort of coined a phrase for it, we always win a battle. We never win a war. <laughs> and it certainly happened that way uh, ever since World War II. Absolutely. And then at the when Uncle Walt came out with his saying, uh, we, we can't win this, was at a time at the Tet Offensive, 
near the end of it when every major battle had been won by U.S. forces. Now, it took some time, and Wei was one of the bloodiest battle scenes where the Marines fought, you know, street house to house. And then later, the 1st Cav came in, other units, and they took it. Yep. And at a great cost to the communists. Oh, indeed. But they just, you know, they, after Uncle Walt said, we're losing it, that was the attitude that moved forward with it. That was a nail in the coffin. Oh, yeah. Well, any other side notes on the Phoenix Project for you personally? or No. Um, it sounds like it's a program that should have been carried on for years, sure. no matter where we go. Yeah. Because that's a structure where you work with local people to smoke out the communists or the enemy forces and then to win the hearts and minds of the people as you go forward to build that foundation against oppression. Yeah. These guys in, in the villages, all they wanted to do was to survive, to have something to eat, to be able to feed their families. Uh, they had no ideology, uh, and basically they were being kept from that. So yeah, they were pissed about the whole thing, and they were more than happy when we rolled in and took the village and didn't allow the, the people to come in and take all their rice. Right. So they could feed some of the some of the troops out there. Sure. And then beat up and, and abuse their women. Yes, exactly so. And oh, just disgusting. The, um, um, there was another point there. Oh, it went away. So from the Phoenix Project, what I'd like to do here, John, is to go back to uh, see how a farm boy from Oklahoma winds up in Special Forces and uh, you graduated from high school in uh, 1960? 1960. You just were 17 years old, and you said I had enough of the farm, and off you went to the Army recruiter. Yes, I went to the Army recruiter. We had a hard hand who had been in the 101st Airborne during World War II. Really? So, uh, And he told me all the stories about Airborne, and I thought, oh, that's what I want to do. I want to go out and jump out of airplanes. And everybody <laughs> thought I was batshit crazy of course uh so i joined up uh and went to uh went went through basic obviously in ait and then went to fort campbell and uh went through jump school there it wasn't jump school a little bit different at fort campbell than what they had later yeah, when we, i went in for example fort benning like my old barber was 101st airborne he said that they used to have to uh jump out of the jeeps they were moving and at some point they would have to uh, physical training was much different than yeah. what i went through in jump school so talk yeah. a little bit more about that because that's a different training regimen than what we had at fort benning yeah for one thing they didn't have the simulator uh that they had at fort benning oh is that right yeah yeah uh your your first part time under a parachute just when you fell out of an airplane right <laughs> oh. <laughs> and your day would be c-47s or flying boxcars yep. right yeah oh. yep. well a flying boxcar was i'm told it was a good jump i never it was jumped. a good jump yeah yeah c-47 i never really had a problem with uh the door's yeah. a little slow a little it's, low getting it's out a little low yeah you have to you have to hunch down a bit but uh <laughs> but once you're out yeah you're out 
So how long was airborne training at Fort Campbell? Uh, three, three, three weeks. weeks also. Yeah, three weeks. And what was the training like? You had the first week was. Oh, there of- was a lot of uh, PLFs, uh, obviously, and a lot of making sure you were in good condition. And PLFs are parachute landing falls, parachute so that when you falls. land, yeah. you don't break a leg, but you have your body upon impact to take the full blow. Yeah, yeah. The feet. Don't try not to do the feet ass head. <laughs> <laughs> the famous uh, parachute landing fall, right? Uh, but uh, and uh, it, we did a lot of jumping off of uh, off of platforms and practicing that, of course. And they had a thirty-two foot tower down there. Had a thirty-two foot tower, right? Uh, and that was to make sure that you knew that you had to get out that door. Well, again, just for our listeners, the thirty-two foot tower was thirty-two feet high. You climb stairs, get up to the top, mm-hmm. and then from it they had a cable. And you hooked onto the cable, and you stood in the door, and the instructor would say, go. Yep. And you had to jump, and you would fall a certain distance, yeah, and then yeah. go down that cable to a berm. Mm-hmm. But there were a lot of people who couldn't do it. Oh, yeah. You yeah. had 32 feet. There's something about that psychological level. <laughs> I guess somebody figured, some shrinks or I must have figured 32 feet is really a mind fucker or something. <laughs> Probably something <laughs> like that. Yeah. Because I remember at jump school seeing that seeing guys just literally hang on to the door and the instructors oh, yeah. are just trying to push them out because you can't get hurt. <laughs> you got the steel cable on your back that's tied to the cable. It's going to take you to the berm where you have young men waiting to catch catch you. Mm-hmm. <laughs> <laughs> so that was all there. Okay. Oh yeah. And yeah. so from there, after jump school, jump school, I was uh, was assigned to a battalion. Uh, and uh, I don't know if we want to go through the Charlie Waters story or not. Uh, I kind of like it, but you, maybe <laughs> probably, you can give us a condensed version of Charlie. Um, they, <laughs> they came around uh, while I was there, and there this guy who had ribbons that went up clear up under his epaulet and a totally unauthorized green beret. Uh, you know, we didn't get our bray, you know, until yeah, JFK later. authorized. So, uh, so he right. was uh, he was wearing un, unapproved <laughs> headgear, uh, and he got up there and started talking about how uh, this thing called the special forces, which I'd never heard of, and I don't think many other people had. And the book hadn't been out yet. No, Lord, no. Yeah. Oh, a little aside. Uh, I was on the. I was a medic on the uh, team. There, when uh, when he got put through uh, the or Robin Moore, Robin Moore. So Robin Moore was the author, yeah. civilian, who wrote the book, The Green Berets, and and he got approval from General uh, Yarborough to do that only if he would go through the training himself. Yeah. He yeah. did. He wrote about it, and thousands of men became Green Berets off of that book. I'm one. Yeah, and I've <laughs> talked to so many over the years who. Said, well, if I go to Vietnam, I know I'm a city slicker. I need more training than just basic and AIT. Indeed. And Special Forces was the place we got it. It is, yeah. Uh, So it. uh, So you're there, Robin Moore. You knew him, huh? Oh yeah, yeah. I was. uh, They would, of course, they'd send all the officers out on the last part of uh, the course, uh, out to the field op, field operations uh, part of it, and he was on it and. I could never figure out where he was producing all those bottles of whiskey. <laughs> because every night, those guys no. would get lit. <laughs> okay. Moving right along to Charlie Waters. 
Yeah, Charlie Waters uh, was uh, Charlie Waters was the bane to my existence. Indeed, uh, a first sergeant in the 101st who had been a <clears throat> marine on the Guadalcanal and then Ooh. got out after the, the World War II, joined back up uh, for Korea and became a ranger and well decorated guy, tough, uh, tough as nails. Uh, he was my first sergeant there in the 101st, and he's the one who convinced me to go on to Fort Bragg because he would probably kill me if <laughs> if I didn't. <laughs> well, that's... <laughs> I, I didn't follow orders very well. <laughs> yeah, and your discipline was you were called into his office, he closed the door and beat the snail snot out of you. Yeah, well, no, he he let me put him up. Oh, is that right? It wasn't as if he one of those where he, you, stand, so you stand there and uh, <laughs> he punches you. No, he let me put him up. I don't think I ever touched him. Uh, he was that good. He was. <laughs> he was very good. <laughs> well, he had two wars prior experience to you being off the farm in Oklahoma. So yeah, at least in terms of combat experience, it really wasn't fair. But <laughs> No, it wasn't fair, but it was effective. I'll say that. So after the second time he whooped you, you finally decided to do what? I joined the Special Forces with uh, when off that the guy Fort came Off you went. Yeah, he, they said <laughs> that was the main reason I joined the Special Forces. They said they'd get me out of Fort Campbell. Get you the first sergeant and kill me. <laughs> But so, again, in fairness, in fairness to Charlie, he only did that if you got in trouble downtown. Oh yeah, being a yeah. young oh, I deserved paratrooper. It. Yeah, I, I deserved it. There's no justified about beating, that. discipline. Oh, yeah. No justified yeah. discipline. <laughs> yeah. A little more harsh than than would be A little be more today. harsh than they than they do. Could these you have days. used the cry room? <laughs> <laughs> I'm sorry. <laughs> That's today's discipline. Yeah, that would have been the latrine. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Without, without as you're dabbing your face yeah. trying to get stop the bleeding <laughs> oh lord okay so you welcome to fort bragg you you arrived there arrived there i got put in i had a high score on practically everything so they decided i needed to go to commo school Ooh. i lasted about two days on that and <laughs> that diddy dotted stuff just didn't cut it for me <laughs> So they they were talking about some. I heard, heard some of the guys talking about you know if you want go want to be a medic, uh, you'll go down to Fort Sam Houston for basic and advanced aid man training, and Fort Sam Houston is full of female soldiers. Ooh. Well, I'm 18 years old. Yes. Uh, so you can. You're imagine. really mature now. Yeah. Uh, <laughs> yeah, I was more mature than I was at 17 anyway. Uh, so. <laughs> So that sounded good to me. I, so away I went uh, to become a medic and met this big, tall uh, Louisiana girl who Indeed. was also there being medic. And uh, 60 years later, we're still together. Yes, and you just uh, a week ago and a day, you celebrated your 60th anniversary. We did. She yeah. still talks to you. She still loves you. And uh, Well, I'm not wow. sure the latter part. but <laughs> <laughs> Well, she was very gracious this morning at breakfast. We'll say that. <laughs> And so, uh, getting getting back to the medic side of things, just for the record, the Green Berets at that time became through that program. They developed a program which was the best medic training in the world. Oh, easily. So the Green Beret medics at that time, throughout the Vietnam War and since, still remain the best medics, which close to a year of training. Mm -hmm. Everything from uh, colds, dealing with medics medicine to severe combat wounds how to treat them and uh 
Um, maybe you could talk just a little bit. Well, first you were attracted to it, but then people don't realize the rigorous of the rigorous uh, study programs you had to go through because um, every day you would get a lot of information. If you could talk just a little bit to let our, our viewers see what that was like. It was like drinking from a fire hose. <laughs> okay. <laughs> yeah, they're, they're throwing things at you, how to treat oh, yeah. people. and every, Yeah, every disease is on demand. Really? You had to, you had to know. Uh, you had to know symptoms. You had to know uh, how to treat it, both palliative treatment and possibly uh, full treatment. Uh, so, and you're talking about 50 or 60 diseases out there that you were likely to incur. Um, so, and you, you didn't have, <laughs> didn't have a smartphone. No. Uh, you couldn't call anybody <laughs> up from out there and, and just know, just the other side of, uh, Cambodia. Indeed. Uh, so, <laughs> so all that stuff had to be in your head. Yeah. Uh, your only re reference was a Merck manual and a, uh, a, uh, anatomy book. And for our readers, the Merck Manual is? The Merck Manual is, it lists all the diseases uh, and basically is point by point. It's about it's about six inches thick. I remember. It's, yeah. It could be used for physical training. It has some weight to it. <laughs> yeah. It oh, does. my God. But you guys knew it. We Basically, we knew it. Yeah, you didn't have time to. You're there. You're trying to treat somebody who's going into convulsions. Uh, you don't have time to pull out the old Merck manual and figure out what the hell is this. <laughs> no, that's true. And then also, you would get daily tests and then weekly tests. Mm -hmm. If you failed any, you're out. Out. Oh, yeah, yeah. There was no, there was no <laughs> second chance in it. Yeah, and I've the other. I've had a couple of really good SF medic friends who talked about how um, at night. Even if they're going through the grueling classes, I mean, when we had our comma class and the MOS training, there was a lot. We had a lot more flexibility than the medic training had, mm -hmm. and I just can't imagine you guys at night would be back and they would be like studying hard. Oh yeah, the day's notes. Yeah, because it, cause you weekends, knew nights, uh, the rest of the world didn't exist. Right. Uh, you you were on that book, and you were working with somebody else, hopefully. I worked with a guy named Gary Jones, uh, who also made it through. Right. Uh, Gary and I would sit there and quiz each other, and he'd pick something out and say, okay, this is dengue fever. Uh, tell wow. me about it. Uh, and you better be able to tell about it, because when you took that test on Friday, you're writing all that down, and it better be complete. And if you didn't, you flunked. Anything you forgot, you'd pay a price for it. You, yep. And then um, eventually, um, so that was 16 weeks at Fort Sam? Uh, yeah, 16 and weeks. And then from there, you would go to, went uh, to an, local hospitals? Yeah, we went to basically. apprenticeships and local hospitals, uh, and they put us into every ward there was, including psych, which people probably thought I belonged. <laughs> uh, but they, uh, I mean, OBGYN, the whole business. Uh, Hell yeah. Yeah. And uh, one, of, one of the things I got to do uh, that I really enjoyed was the doctor down on emergency would let me do, let me do the stitching. Oh, so, really? Yeah. You're good at sewing them up? Mm-hmm. Oh, wow. 
Came um, in very handy later. <laughs> <laughs> indeed. Because I remember our medics at Fubai, at one point, they delivered a lot of babies. Mm-hmm. But yeah. that was part of the SF thing. Even with SOG, we had a village nearby, and we would work with any of the locals, and that would be part of the Hearts and Mind program, mm-hmm. to work with them, help their families medical-wise, and things like that. Yeah. And the medics were the, the point person on it. And of course... Um, We'll get into your first tour and second tour in a little bit, talk about what it was like being... At Parker, our purpose is simple. We want to make the world a better place. By working more efficiently, by using more sustainable practices, by developing better technologies, we keep moving forward. With each new idea, innovation, and partnership, we're one step closer to fulfilling our purpose every single day. To find out more, Visit parker.com slash purpose. Parker, engineering your success. As humans, we're naturally driven by the search for better. But when it comes to hiring, the best way to search for a candidate isn't to search at all. Don't search, match with Indeed. When I was looking to hire someone, it was so slow and overwhelming. I wish I had used Indeed. If you need to hire, you need Indeed. Indeed is your matching and hiring platform with over 350 million global monthly visitors, according to Indeed data, and a matching engine that helps you find quality candidates fast. Ditch the busy work. Use Indeed for scheduling, screening, and messaging so you can connect with candidates faster. And Indeed doesn't just help you hire faster. 93% of employers agree Indeed delivers the highest quality matches compared to other job sites, according to a recent Indeed survey. And listeners of this show will get a $75 sponsored job credit to get your jobs more visibility at Indeed.com slash podcast. That's Indeed.com slash podcast. Terms and conditions apply. Uh, a medic on those teams. But so for your medic training, then after that, there's the dog lab, which has, over the years has had a high degree of controversy from, mm-hmm. we won't even name the organization, but there's a reason why there was a dog lab and the reason why and what kind of training was that for you? Yeah, well, that was the surgical lab. Right. Uh, that was the part where you actually treated a wound uh, and you had combat to able, wound. Yeah, a combat wound. Uh, and the dog, and we were using dogs at the time. They weren't quite as politically conscious as we are today. Yeah. Uh, but you had to have live flesh. Uh, so what are you going to shoot? Yeah. Uh, you're going to go. You're going to go get a free dog because the army wasn't making a lot of money <laughs> in those days. <laughs> or go buy a pig or Indeed. a bunch of pigs. Yeah. Uh, so we'd go to the local uh, pound and pick out a good sized dog. Couldn't pick up some little yapper. Right. Uh, then bring him back in, anesthetize him. One of the instructors would uh, would shoot uh, into the upper thigh, uh, avoiding the bone. Right. Uh, and then it was your job to treat that wound, keep that dog alive uh, for the rest of that week. The uh, entire week? For the entire week. Wow. And if you did not, you flunked. If that dog died, you were out. And you said... Also, you couldn't use antibiotics? No antibiotics, no. So what would the treatment be? Uh, I'm a combo guy now, so help me out here a little bit. (laughs) Purely purely using uh, iodine and swabs and... uh, Keeping it clean. Yeah, keeping keeping the wound clean. Uh, Debreeding uh, any part of it. The first thing you do is go in and you test the flesh and see if it's still alive. 
Okay. Uh, How do you do that? Uh, you pick it up and test test it for uh, flexibility. Elasticity. Yeah. Uh, and if it's uh, if it's if it's loose and it's flopping, that's got to come off of there. Right. Uh, because it will. That's that's your focus for infection. You could have been a flesh inspector. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> <laughs> okay. So a week later, and again, we should emphasize that this training is what led to the Green Beret medics being the best in the world. Because in combat, you could treat any wound, any wound, and yeah. that enabled us to keep our people, our SF, as well as our indigenous people, alive during combat. Yeah, you got to remember that the the SF medic and special forces in itself. The original idea was that special forces was designed to go behind enemy lines, and in case the balloon ever went up, and organize, equip, train guerrillas in Belarusia or uh, Russia itself, or like World War II with the OSS behind enemy lines. OSS behind enemy lines. That's exactly. part of our heritage. Yep. Uh, and you go, you're back there, and somebody gets wounded. One of your people gets wounded. You're not going to take him to the local hospital because they're going to kill him. Yeah. So you've got to treat all the wounds there, and you've got to treat the diseases that uh, that are pandemic to those areas. And you're not going to get it outside assistance. You may occasionally get an overflight and a package in it, but that'd be about the extent of it. And the package would just be medicines. Basically. Right, yeah. and more bandages. Yep. Basically. Maybe a couple of body bags. Yeah. So you had to, so you had to have that ability to do that and completely austere. And this is all part of your training uh, as an enlisted man at that time. Correct. So, um, so the total time you were in medic training was approximately a year? Uh, yeah, it's a little over that. Because yeah. then when you're done, then you go back to Bragg, and then you go through uh, the training there, wrapping it up with a field training exercise, yeah. FTX, where FTX, yeah. that's the last phase of training where it's like three weeks and you work together as an A-team for the first time. Mm -hmm. The traditional A-team, which has an officer, executive officer, they're running the team, but then you have a team sergeant and then you have five MOSs, uh, two medics, senior, junior, two commo, two demo, uh, two engineers, weapons, and then um, intel. Yeah, and intel. And so that would be the team, the way it would work. Yeah. And uh, so you graduate from that, and then before long, welcome to Vietnam, and you got there early. Got there in February of 1963. Wow. Uh, they, were, they were starting to expand special forces in Vietnam. Before that, there had been very few there. Uh, there had been the occasional team here and there, but this was the start of the entire hearts and minds uh, exercise. So we were starting new camps all over the place. Uh, ours was up at uh, up on the Cambodian border. You could almost spit into Cambodia from. Oh, is that right? Way. Yeah. Uh, and, and the reason why it was there was because of the heck of an infiltration route. Sure, uh, they uh, they were coming through there, and it was almost straight. If you look at Loch Ninn and on the map, that peninsula there or that t terrain there basically is an arrow on the heart of uh, Saigon. So that was extremely important. We got there while the French were still there. Really. 
they had plantations all over the place, rubber for the most part. Sure. Uh, they had uh, up the hill from where we had to camp, they had a uh, an entire go-to club there where they had a swimming pool. They had uh, you go to <laughs> go to their bar and have a drink. Yeah. Uh, of course, they were flying intel to the D.C. We knew that, uh, but they would occasionally give us a little decent intel too. Well, the French were also paying the Viet Cong. Oh, of course protection money so that the Viet Cong would not harm their, them or their their uh, rubber trees. Yep, exactly. So. Which, again, another little sidebar. <laughs> yeah, it's uh, to the extent that uh, we had to build our camp in the absolutely the worst possible spot that you could have had up there. In a valley somewhere? In a valley. Oh, uh, rubber trees all around you. <laughs> right. Uh, and you could not shoot outside that camp unless you were actually attacked because uh, you might hit a rubber tree. No. Oh, yeah. Yeah, our restrictions were pretty pretty ridiculous. We talk about stupid rules of engagement. <laughs> it sounds like the epitomization is that same. Yeah, pretty much. <laughs> we, uh, we, got, we, got, uh, we had a patrol out, uh, and this goes back to the medic part. Of it. We had sure. a patrol out, and they got shot up pretty bad. Uh, so we brought them back into camp, and, of course, the first thing you do is triage. Uh, you... Put them in categories. These are guys who will wait because it's minor. Uh, these are guys who you'll treat now because if you don't treat them now, they die. Uh, they die. These are the guys that doesn't matter how much you treat; they're probably going to die. So we did that, and we, I'm, me and the senior medic, uh, worked our asses off most of that night. And there was one guy uh, over the side who had been put in that side for good, probably good reason. He'd taken a round up under his nose and had taken the front part of his head off, his Whoa. skull off. So, but he was still alive. So being this arrogant young medic that I am, I bet I can keep him alive. So after we had everything else done, uh, I'm over there, and I'm, he went into convulsions. So I give him something for convulsions. It goes down too far. I give him something to bring him back up from that. We went through that seesaw all night, uh, and the next day he was still alive. Uh, we evacuated him, finally got a plane in there up on the runway, evacuated him, and went down to Saigon. And I thought, that's the end of that. He'll go to— Yeah, yeah. He'll he, he die. Let, when I went back on the second tour, he was a gate guard at Camp Goodman. No. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> and again, that was, was that from the ambush where after you all had been there for a while? It was, it was we'd, been, new... we'd been there for a while, but it was before the ambush. Okay. Uh, that, uh, Another conflict. Yeah. Um, the, the one you're talking about there is where we were getting ready to be replaced. Our tour was up Because you were with B Company again at that time. Uh, C Company the, was going to take the... Right, and then uh, 5th Special Forces Group was sending people in TDY, which is temporary duty for six months. TDY, yeah, at that time. Right. Yeah. They, didn't, uh, they didn't get deployed en masse until 65. Right. Uh, so, yeah, it was teams, being, teams replacing teams. Uh, our team came in. They'd been there a couple of days, probably. And we, one of the things that was a great success story for us was the outreach that we did, uh, medical outreach that we did to these various villages. Uh, we'd take 
some of the young medics that we had trained, the, the, we didn't have any Vietnamese. We had Cambodians at that time. Oh, is that right? Yeah, they were all Cambodians. How uh, were they? Uh, they were great. Uh, brave little suckers. Uh, but we'd, uh, we'd go out with that on a deuce and a half, loaded with supplies. Uh, one of us, uh, one of the two medics, would go out with it. We alternated days on that. Uh, we'd go to the village, and we'd start treating people, and we'd lines would form, uh, probably 20, 30 people long. And you're there trying to take care of these people uh, and give them what they need, whether it be a drug or whether it's sewing something up or pulling a tooth. I probably pulled more tooth uh, teeth in that six months there in uh, in in Vietnam. How many than, babies did you deliver? I uh, only delivered two. Two, but yeah. still, it's two more than me. <laughs> <laughs> oh my gosh! But our intel sergeant would be on down the line somewhere, and he'd be talking to these villagers there and asking them just innocuous questions. He could which, talk the language. Yeah. Wow. Uh, and he, the, he would get these. Uh, so we'd gather all kinds of good intel about what was going on in the villages and everything else. And again, we can compare that to the to the communist tactics, which would come in with weapons. We're taking over your village. Give us your food. Oh, come here, sweetheart. Rape the women. Whereas the Green Berets come in, they work with the villagers. And it could be everything from something as fundamental as we have a stream of water coming through your village. Have the poop pot downstream not upstream please yeah. move it something basically like that <laughs> yeah, to true. to doing complete surgery delivering uh, babies things like that indeed our biggest enemy though were the traditional healers uh because oh is that right oh yeah they 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 saw us as upstarts we didn't know chinese medicine we didn't know this you know and some of the stuff that they were doing like cupping yeah. like uh, what like cupping for muscle uh injuries Oh, no, I'm the, not familiar the, with that. It, uh, the, they burn a piece of cotton in a ceramic cup uh-huh. and put it on the on a bruise or anything like that. Yeah. And what that does is it sucks the it sucks basically sucks the, uh, the blood out. Blood out. Oh, no kidding. Yeah, and you see that in NBA now. Uh, that uh, so you know you know it works. Yeah, it works. <laughs> I was uh, I was a little skeptic of it at that point. Sure, but uh, but, but in any case, that's that's what we did. That's one of the things you had to juggle in the field. Yeah. <laughs> so we uh, that day it was my senior medic. Uh, he took the took the team out uh, to this to this village that we'd visited several times before. Uh, unbeknownst to us, uh, the VC had decided they didn't like the fact that we were doing that and gathering intel and turning the village around so they wouldn't be supported. You were winning hearts and minds, and yes, the communists don't like that. Yeah, no, they do not. No. So they set up a they set up an ambush in uh, a the only road that came in and out of there. Well, in the mean, and they had intended basically to shoot up our medical team and kill the medic, kill the sergeant uh, there. Uh, but as chance had it, our new command, the new commander, uh, Captain Mosier, wanted to see one of these. So he and my my commander, Captain, uh, 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 jumped in a jeep along with uh, Goodman, the first sergeant Goodman, jumped in the jeep and away they went. Well, the VC saw a target of opportunity, uh, and they. 
let loose on them. Uh, Captain Mosher was killed immediately. Uh, Sergeant Goodman took a took a bullet through the back of the head, killed immediately. Uh, Sergeant or uh, Captain Hackley was uh, he had been wounded. He got a, got into a ditch and was trying to return fire. And they threw a grenade in on him, and that was the end of the story. Wow! So they had been driving in a jeep when they when they opened fire in a jeep, and they didn't have any other protection. Just no, them. No other protection. Right. No, no. Uh, sidearms. Right. This is 1963. 1963. They were the 64th through 68th Americans killed in Vietnam. Wow. So um, that tour duty ends. You come back to the states. Back to Bragg. Back to Bragg, and it looked to me like I was going to be on detail after detail, (laughs) uh, picking up pine cones (laughs) and uh, mowing lawns. You know, in those days, you had to be a master sergeant to get a power mower. Uh, (laughs) Everybody else push mowers or sling blades. Uh, So I decided I didn't really want that, and they were asking for volunteers to go out to language school. Ah, Language oh. school, yeah. Become a cunning linguist. <laughs> yes, indeed. <laughs> so I uh, went out to Monterey and uh, took French for six months. Oh and wow, Monterey! Yeah, it was it was great. That's still one uh, of the best schools around. Oh, it is. Yeah. Yes. Well, it could be why uh, I went to Monterey again and studied Russian, and then went to Monterey again and studied Spanish. Oh, is that right? Yeah. <laughs> You became a regular out there <laughs> in between tours of duty in, in Vietnam. In between tours of duty. And then, oh, yeah, there's this another training you forced upon yourself. Besides going to OCS and becoming a lieutenant, um, you went to Ranger. Oh, yeah. Ranger training in the dead of winter. Dead of winter. Winter oh. Ranger. God. Um, I didn't learn anything <laughs> uh, that I didn't already know. So... Uh, I thought, you know, you've just put yourself into eight weeks of misery. And it was. It was miserable. But I got the tab. You got the tab. Uh, oh, the yeah, ranger that, tab. That was really important later on. Yes. Is that right? No. No. <laughs> so after ranger training, at some point you go back to the seventh group. And then uh, 1967, Actually, February. Actually, no, I went to the newly formed third group. That's right. I'm sorry. And... They had moved the 5th out, and they were setting up. And the 5th Special Forces Group, now their headquarters, was in the train. Yep. So the entire group was there. Their main focus was Vietnam. Mm -hmm. And then for SOG, we were detached, excuse me, from headquarters. But we had all our personnel records of things that were handled there. Mm -hmm. But our direct chain of command would go through Saigon. And then what about your... um, your chain of command, like when you had an operation gone, you reported directly to the CIA then about your missions or who you were working with, who, when you're with the Phoenix Project, who, where would your center I base? Would, uh, I would provide that to our uh, ROIC, our regional officer in charge. Uh, he, and yes, he was agency. Right. I don't know if he was active agency or not, but he certainly was agency. You never can tell with them. They no. don't wear badges. No, I'd, I'd heard somewhere later on that the, Roger McCarthy was his name. I'd heard somewhere later on that he was one of the last people and one of the many coups that they'd had in Bolivia. Last people running really? for aircraft and <laughs> shooting as he goes. <laughs> <laughs> Okay, so your second tour of duty, you land 
in the two core. Two core. And yeah. uh, so Benton, the Central Highlands area, and yeah, again Vin- you get another one of these these camps that the, fortunately the CBs built the A camp yeah. all all underground again. Yeah, yeah, that was uh, the, that was that was Venton. Uh, the Venton Valley was a known corridor for North Vietnamese coming down. Uh, the Yellow Star Division basically made their home there, and that was one of the one of their top divisions in in those days. No the Yellow Star Division. I never heard. Yeah. Of okay. Yellow Star. Uh, I don't know what number they were, but they went by that. But they um, the the 101st had been, oh, not the 101st, sorry. First Cav. The First Cav had been through there, and they had said they'd cleaned it all out and everything else, and we're still getting mortared and rocketed uh, practically every day. And, you know, if you cleaned it out, that's uh, that's pretty hard to do. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> <laughs> but uh, the, uh, we, one of the things that, that convinced me that there were a lot more people out there than what uh, they were saying was that we had a recon, uh, small recon outfit with one of my NCOs uh, go up into one of the valleys there. And they set up, uh, they hear somebody coming, so they set up an impromptu ambush. Uh, and here come these guys bopping down the trail, uh, no care in the world. So they trigger the ambush, kill all the people, start grab all their stuff, and head back into camp. Well, uh, we uh, we start looking through it, and one of the things they have is a sight for a 120 millimeter mortar. Wow! Uh, now 120 doesn't come in anything unless in a regimental size unit. Oh, is that right? Yeah. So oh. we knew that there were there were bad guys out there. And this part of Contoon area, or Two core, I mean, mm-hmm. two years earlier, 1965, that's where the first cav was bloodied yes. at the Idrang Valley. Yeah. And of course, the first battle that the movie was based on, we were soldiers once. Um, that was the first confrontation between U.S. troops, Army, versus the North Vietnamese Army. And they had been entrenched, which nobody realized again due to poor intel until they get on the ground and they're fighting for their lives. Yep. So this area had been hotly contested. And of course, the other sidebar, after the the first battle of the Idrang, the second battle, they really got hurt. Mm-hmm. Um, so two years later, there's still a lot of enemy activity, and here comes your recon patrols out. They get intel saying, "Oh, there's a 120. This there's a bigger unit coming." And the first cav reaction to that was what, sir? Yeah, the first cav reaction. Yeah, they poo pooed it. Oh. <laughs> That's uh, leftovers. There, we've been through that area so many times. There's nobody left out there. Uh, okay, uh, that's uh, that's fine. But they said, because you guys are probably scared out there, uh, we will send a company out and we will check things out. Well, they sent the company out. They landed them up on top of top of one of the mountains out there. Uh, their mortar platoon they left down in a saddle in between those mountains and they went out patrolling. Well, the North Vietnamese came in there and savaged that platoon, uh, killed Whoa. most of them, killed two journalists, which I don't think is that much of a loss. <laughs> but, uh, <laughs> bad, bad history with journalists. Indeed. Uh, but they, uh, but 
then you had a, one of the cab generals fly over, and they, uh, he says, well, ain't this the craziest damn horse I ever rode? So that became Operation Crazy Horse, uh, and one of Webb Griffin, uh, not Webb Griffin. Uh, W.E.B.? No. Uh, Griffiths? No, the other writer. Oh. Uh, the one who's written all the books about. I'll think of it in a minute. Yeah, it'll come to us. Yeah. But he wrote, uh, he wrote a book about, uh, about this particular operation. So then it was all in. The cab was, cab was there. Uh, they had the Koreans coming from the coast. They had a, a Vietnamese division that was there. And by God, we've got it surrounded. Well, in the first place, you ain't surrounding any place up in the mountains like that. No. Uh, but they were convinced that they did. Now we need to know where they are. So we're going to take four special forces teams uh, and we're going <laughs> to put them 18. on the ground. Yeah, we're going to put them on the ground and they're going to find them and fix them. And then we'll come in and annihilate them. Okay. So, <laughs> so guess who's out there again? <laughs> no. Oh, yeah. You're trying to pinpoint a battalion. Trying to pinpoint a lot more than a battalion. Was that right? How big do you think it was at that point? There was almost a a full regiment, and they were still still bringing people in. Yeah, of course. Yeah. uh, And they they were very good at laying low until the right time. Uh, I don't think that the American Army ever really understood that. Uh, They... They finally got to doing some recon much later on and training some people to do recon. Before that, it was just stumble until you hit, until you find somebody. Oh, my God. Uh, so we, so your, your four units go out, and they found somebody. Oh, yeah. We, uh, <laughs> we, we, I look up this hillside, and we're in the elephant grass, and I look up this hillside, and there, it's an open area before you get yeah, just to, for our to viewing the public. Line. Elephant grass is grass that's thick, it's bladed, and it can be anywhere from three to four feet to ten to twelve feet. Exactly. And moving through it is noisy. It's, it cuts you up if you don't have gloves on. Yep. It will. It's just nasty. Yeah. Stuff. It's. Uh, and I, so you're landed in that, and now you. And you can't be too clandestine because anybody within half a mile will see the elephant grass, will hear the yeah, noise. Yeah, you're the trampling troops. it down by yeah. going through there. So, yeah, you're building a trail for them. Uh, so they know exactly where you are. Well, we get up to this one mountainside. It's clear about halfway up uh, out of the elephant grass, and then the tree line is there. And we start receiving a little bit of fire from there. So my uh, my company commander, BC, my a Vietnamese company commander. So, Boku VC, let's get them. <laughs> Is that right? I'm I'm not yeah. saying I'm the smartest guy in the world. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> but yeah, we he started. Can use uh, Trung Nguy. <laughs> yeah, we uh, we started assaulting uh, and started taking some casualties, as you can imagine, uh, and couldn't. One of my one of the things I hated was that I didn't have a medic another medic out with me, so I couldn't right. do anything for him at the point. Uh, and get about halfway up that thing and out of the tree line, and I realized uh, we're in a, we're rocking a hard place here. Uh, we go back down; uh, they're going to shoot us. Uh, they're going to come down and overrun you, overrun us. We stay here, and they're going to trit us. Uh, so we got to assault. When in doubt, charge. That's it. 
Uh, <laughs> I can't imagine. So we'd done, yeah. I'd done a lot of, uh, of uh, training with these guys on laying down a base, an element laying down a base of fire, keeping the enemy head down. The whole fire maneuver the tactics. Other, yeah, fire maneuver. Uh, and they were following it to a T. Uh, so we got up close where we could actually see the guys in the holes and start taking them out. And I was throwing grenades. And That uh, scene we happened to book, was is that the one we, fictional, quote, fictionalized? But it's actually, this is the real deal. <laughs> it was the real deal, yeah. Oh. Uh, one funny part uh, of that whole thing, if anything about it can be funny, is that I'd run out of grenades. Uh, so the yards, That's not funny. <laughs> yeah, the yards were throwing me their grenades because I could throw them further. Yeah, because uh, the know, yards can't body throw. strength yeah. they don't have. So I'm throwing those grenades, and, uh, and then I see that uh, some of them starting to roll a little bit back down, so I started cooking them off. Right. Uh, one second, two second throw. Uh, and they would go off when they were supposed to, and that impressed the shit out of the yards. So <laughs> the problem was that they decided they would make it easier on the lieutenant. They'd pull the pin, throw the, the spoon oh, no. and come off. They'd throw it to me, and I'm here scrambling for that damn grenade. <laughs> Thank goodness you had good hands. Don't do this anymore. Yeah. <laughs> I'll take care of the spoon. And yeah. just for our listeners that aren't familiar, you have a hand grenade that has a firing device. And there's a, there's literally a spoon that wraps around it, but it has a pin. You pull the pin out, the spoon pops off. That ignites the detonator. That's a five second fuse. Mm -hmm. and, and when that comes off, you have five seconds to get rid of your grenade. Mm -hmm. <laughs> so yes, for the Montiers, take it off, throw you the grenade. Now it's live. It's ticking down. <laughs> You've got to catch it and get rid of it before you get the shrapnel from your grenade. Yeah. 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 And our grenades were very good, very deadly. Yeah, they are very deadly. Yeah, there's no question about that. I don't know so much about the baseball grenades that they have now, but certainly the ones we had then. Oh, absolutely. Yes. Great. So was this the mission where um, you were seriously wounded by a remote-controlled detonation? No. no, that was later. Uh, that was later on. Later in that tour due to your second tour? Yeah. Okay. Yeah. So moving right along then, the... How's the, what goes along and what led to the mission where you wound up getting seriously wounded? We were always doing patrols, uh, if nothing else, to then to keep them off their uh, keep them off uh, their off bounds. Yeah, keep yeah. them keep them on notice that we were out there. And I'd run anything from a platoon to a company. And this one case, we knew where a rice cache was. We'd gotten intel on that, so we went to the rice cache and. <laughs> You ever tried to destroy about 2,000 pounds of rice? No. <laughs> you can't. <laughs> <laughs> Not even with napalm? No. <laughs> Snap, crackle, pop? <laughs> we, we enjoyed ourselves by pissing in it. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> <laughs> but oh, no. uh, then we're coming back to going back to camp, mm -hmm. uh, and the, I always kept flanks out when we had a company-sized unit out there. Sure because you can maneuver that way. If you get hit on one side, you can maneuver on at least two other sides. Same thing if you hit in the And that's middle. the fundamentals of patrolling with the large yeah, unit. exactly. Flank security. Yeah, but people being what they are, uh, security feels like it should be in close to another person. 
So inevitably, those flanks would start inching in, and I'd raise hell with them and call them every name except that there was and get them out and then go and then they'd be doing it on and you're in the jungle at this point or like no i'm out in the open open, out in the open totally in the open at this point so you really want them spread out yeah um so i'd just gotten back from one of those tirades that i'd given and i'd walked into the column which uh, the center column was uh one man after another you didn't want to spread out because you Better chance of hitting something that you don't want to hit, mine or something. So uh, I ordinarily walked uh, no more than two uh, to three men behind point because I wanted to be able to see what the action was and react to it intelligently. Sure. Not from behind there somewhere where everybody, everything's going on up at front. But I'd gotten back in and I was circling uh, around to to get back up to my position. I'd gotten up to position six, I think it was, and the whole world just went boom. Uh, And next thing I realized, I'm lying on my back and I'm bleeding from virtually everywhere. I can't hear a thing. Uh, And everything looks like it's a haze around. Oh, is that right? Yeah. And I thought, (laughs) I'm dead. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> so I laid there. I couldn't have laid there more than another about five seconds. And then I looked again, and I'm still bleeding. Uh, wait a minute. I'm not <laughs> enough dead. of a medic to know that you can't bleed if you're dead. <laughs> so I'm and I'm hurting. So and I'm you bleeding, don't hurt. I'm hurting. Therefore, I'm still alive. <laughs> therefore, I'm still alive. The good news is I'm alive, but I'm bleeding. Yeah. I can't see very well. And that's because they had a detonated a remote controlled detonation of a mine of yeah, some sort. It was, uh, basically, it was designed on the, the, similarly to our Claymore, where you're throwing out a bunch of pellets at very rapid speeds that will puncture killer, through killer anything. Speeds. Yeah. Uh, so they, they did their own, which was take a barrel lid and make it concave. Uh, put C4 or RDX or whatever they had mm-hmm. all over the face of it and then stick every piece of metal that they could find into it and uh, and detonate it. And it would have had a killing radius of uh, probably 30 feet. Wow. On, uh, uh, so it was uh, pretty pretty nasty. It wiped out uh, my first three people. They were, they were dead on arrival. Uh, the fourth one uh, died of wounds. Uh, the f- fifth one was uh, was wounded as well uh, as I was. Uh, had you been in your normal spot, you would have been KIA. Oh, I'd have been dead. Yeah. Yeah, I'd have been dead. No question about that. Wow. Uh, so uh, they medevac me and take me into, uh, into Quignon, the field hospital there. And I'm lying on the gurney and I'm hearing... A plink, plink, as they're taking pieces of metal out of me <laughs> out of and your dropping body. the emesis pan. Oh my gosh! <laughs> <laughs> they give t- me anesthetic. Did you but... bring any home for souvenirs? No, I didn't. I, did, I wasn't in the mood for souvenirs no. that day. <laughs> but you're on the stretcher, huh? I, I have oh. enough souvenirs yeah. when I pull my shirt off. <laughs> <laughs> oh, you're just riddled with the stuff. Oh yeah, yeah. Uh, some of it was bones from the people in front of me. Sure. Yeah, blown all sorts of crap on me. A lot of the blood was from people in front of me. Oh, man. So uh, eventually you get inside the hospital, and this had one of those unique moments in time where I guess you really haven't talked about that much, 
But at one point, there was a nurse who's kind of like chuckling at you or something. <laughs> I'm sorry. I, I just really, we just got to go down this bumpy trail. <laughs> so the, the nurse is chuckling at you. Yeah, we had a, we had a, a charge nurse. Uh, she was in charge of all the, all the rest of the nurses. Right. Uh, and she, I thought she was an old woman. Of yeah. course, I'm at that time, what, 22? At least, yeah. Uh, yeah, and she's probably in her 30s, so she has to be an old woman. Yeah, by your, yeah, indeed. A, any listeners, uh, <laughs> I don't, I'm not prejudiced against 30-year-old women. No, no, particularly uh, now. <laughs> happy married for 60 years. Thank you very much. That's it. Uh, but she was, uh, while I was laying there, on, she was sort of trying to stifle a laugh. And I'm wondering what the hell is she laughing about? I'm and by here. now you're all you're all drugged up with painkillers. Oh yeah, you pain can't killers. feel anything. Yeah, I don't feel much of anything. Yeah, yeah. you're just happy to be alive. <laughs> yeah. And why is this damn nurse chuckling at me? <laughs> yes. Well, I found out. Uh, <laughs> the, <laughs> I asked the doctor about it, uh, and he said uh, I didn't really want to talk to you about this right now, but uh, and don't worry. Uh, but you took there's three, no brain damage <laughs> you know brain damage yeah. yeah there was brain damage <laughs> <laughs> what my wife accuses me of anyway uh, the, the, he said you've taken three of those pellets right through your penis uh, and we embedded in your thigh so don't worry nothing has other else has been affected uh, you'll maintain all everything that you need to maintain. Indeed. And then he gave me another shot. Uh, <laughs> I was gone at that point. <laughs> but later that night, I'm up in the ward, and yeah. this charge nurse comes by. In one of those moments in time. Oh, she, uh, uh, she, she has this whole gaggle of nurses behind her. I think she's probably ever nursed in that hospital. <laughs> She comes up there, she throws the covers off of me yeah, and says, Girls, have you ever seen a dick like this? <laughs> and by now it's swollen. Oh, it's swollen about three times its proper size. <laughs> Move over, Trigger. We got a new horse. We got a new stud here. <laughs> oh, my God. <laughs> Welcome to Vietnam. Yeah. <laughs> to add insult to injury, one of my... Uh, One of my NCOs, several days later, yeah, comes down and uh, he's seeing how I am and everything, and he's brought a bottle of whiskey with him, of course. Of course. So we're uh, we're sadly we're we're taking a few sips of that. I think it didn't last. Did you start more. to leak? Uh, <laughs> I'm sorry. No, but <laughs> no, but. Uh, and this sergeant being typical special forces. Indeed. You know, sensitive and kind. Right, kind of. Yeah, uh, yes. absolutely. I forgot the second part. Yeah, yeah. yeah. He, uh, he says, tell me, Trungwe, how do you piss out of that thing? You play it like a piccolo? <laughs> <laughs> oh, no. I got called that name for years. <laughs> that became... <laughs> piccolo? <laughs> piccolo. Yeah. That became... Because of the instrument, indeed. Yeah. Uh, <laughs> Making fun of your instrument of love. Yeah. Yes, indeed. That's all right. I got him later. <laughs> Did you? At same camp. No uh, kidding. We. Uh, you able to go back to the camp? Or you, oh you, yeah, you, I went back to the camp. No. Yeah. Yeah. Then caught malaria and had it gone again. Again. But, oh, then you got really sick. Yeah. Yeah. I oh, was sick God. for a month on that. Oh. Uh, but then went back to the camp, and we had two NCOs there that hated each other's guts. 
uh, and they'd get into fistfights for no apparent reason and just tear shit up all over the place until, you know, one of them declared <laughs> he won and the yeah. other one say, okay, next time. So it disrupted the whole camp. And my <clears throat> commander there, the com- captain, says, you used to be an NCO. Get those two straightened out. <laughs> so here I am between these guys. And they're both, they're probably four inches taller than I am. Really? Yeah. Okay. And I'm between them, and I said, I'm going to whip your ass if you keep this up. And they look at me and just laugh. <laughs> <laughs> but one of them, you know, I told you about the latrine up on the right. up there. Yes. So one of them was in there doing his duty one day, gets up to leave. Uh, the latrine had a spring door on it, of course, to keep flies out as much as right. possible. Uh, so as he goes out, that door slaps him in the ass. And his forty-five goes off. No. And it carves a groove right down his leg. <laughs> and I, uh, so he comes there, and I take him to the dispensary. I said, I'll take care of this. I took him to the dispensary, and I'm swabbing out the wound and putting stuff on it and bandaging and everything. And I said, uh, here's the thing, Snake. I'm going to put you in for the Purple Heart for this. And he said, oh, God damn, you can't do that. I said, yes, I can, and I will. <laughs> and everybody in Vietnam, by the time I get through, will know that you got your Purple Heart by getting shot by a shithouse. <laughs> Was that Snake Adams? Uh, no. <laughs> no. Wasn't another Adam. snake. Another snake. <laughs> <laughs> he said, oh, God, you can't do that. I said, there's one, one condition. You apply for a transfer somewhere else. I'm tired of trying to get between you two assholes. He was gone the next day. <laughs> That's efficiency. <laughs> oh, my God. All right, well, so anything more from your second tour? We've gone through the third tour, and then I wanted to shift gears. Um, you had your... Uh, the last 10 years of your time in the military, because you're in for a total of 22 years. Mm-hmm. So after that, maybe just give us a quick cursory overview. Yeah, a quick one. I uh, had to go back to uh, the infantry advance course uh, after the last tour. Right. Uh, That's almost a year. They teach you how to be a battalion commander, supposedly. Uh, you know, teaching World War II tactics. Right, as, as and the always. Vietnam War is still going on. Been going on for Vietnam six years. They're giving you World War II tactics. Yeah. Yes, uh, very good. So mostly that's we our just, army. Mostly we just stayed drunk. Yeah. <laughs> uh, so, uh, then decided, hey, I just I want to go back to Monterey, so applied for and got Russian language school and went out there and spent a year, and that set me up then to go to Bad Tolts uh, to First Battalion of the Tenth Special Forces Group. Right. At that time. And just for our listening audience, Bad Totes was the first assignment outside of the U.S. where the Green Berets went in 1952-53. The SF Originals went over. They trained, left on a boat from Wilmington, North Carolina, went to Germany, took a train, maybe a second train, and then they marched into Bad Totes. And Bad Totes had a history. Because the Cold War was going on at the time. Oh, yeah. The Russians. Bad Totes had a history all its own. That was the SS... Officer Shirley. Right, I forgot that. Yeah. And the SS is, just so again, for our listeners that are young today, this is the German SS. Mm-hmm. Yep. Um, 
So spent four years there, learned to ski, and that's another story in itself. <laughs> I'd just come out of Southeast Asia. <laughs> right. Yeah, it wasn't exactly uh, qualified. Atlanta rice paddies. Yeah, uh, not, many... not much skiing, uh, even in the Central Highlands, you no. know. So, but everybody had to learn to ski because that was if the balloon ever went up, which everybody knew it wasn't. But if it ever did, well, that was going to be one of our methods of getting um, past the enemy. Skis and, and going, snowshoes, going, right? Going back into where we were going to set up these gorillas. Uh, so we, everybody had to learn to ski, and what a circus that was. Uh, they had these old white star skis that were, they seemed to be about 11 feet long. <laughs> they weren't quite that, but they were And quite, very narrow. Uh, no, they were quite wide. Was that right? Yeah, they were quite For, wide. Okay. And the, uh, the, the clamps on them, uh, you could put your ankle on the ground before that damn thing would cut an edge. <laughs> uh, and, and Wolverine boots. And no ski boots, just Wolverine boots. Oh. And that's how we were. That's how we were skiing. Uh, Whoa! <laughs> yeah, it's <was> ridiculous. <laughs> so, <laughs> what was fun though was we always had a ski march uh, at least once a year after we got good snow, and that was going up one mountain using uh, moleskin uh, on the bottom of them to go up the mountain, uh, and then taking that off and skiing down the next slope and then going back up the next mountain and down the next slope. Well, that next slope, was they had a gas house right down at the bottom of it. And the Germans somehow had found out what our schedule was. So when we were scheduled to come down that last mountain. The place was packed. Everybody drinking beer and cheering us on and everything else. Oh, no else. kidding. Yeah, the reason being that it was a disaster city as we were coming down that last <laughs> We had, it looked like snow explosions were going off. Cheap entertainment, huh? Oh, yeah. For the locals <laughs> at your expense. <laughs> oh, my gosh. So then uh, 22 years, then what happens there? At 22 years, I uh, tried to get a job somewhere in corporate America. Found out pretty quickly that corporate America didn't have a lot of use for my peculiar skills, and the mafia wasn't hiring. Right. <laughs> so, uh, so I uh, went to Saudi Arabia and worked there for three years, uh, training the Saudi Arabian National Guard. Oh wow! Came back to the states and thought, well, I'll get an MBA, and then somebody will hire me. I got an MBA. Nobody hired me. <laughs> so, but have you started writing yet at that point? No, I hadn't started at okay. that point. No, I had. Uh, so at that point, then uh, the 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 various agencies came calling. The three-letter uh, alphabet soups. I didn't work for them at first. Uh, the first one was the anti-terrorism assistance program. It was run by the State Department. Right. Uh, it was basically aviation security because that was when we were all worried about and more hijackings and dropping airplanes in where they shouldn't be. Right. Uh, so I worked there for a couple of years, and I went to work for ISATAP, International Criminal Investigative Training and Assistance Program. Common uh, spelling, yeah. Yeah, and uh, it was it was primarily oriented towards the drug wars. Uh, and it was, uh, it was. Uh, uh, this is in Southeast Asia or South America? No, South America. Okay. Yeah, and I spoke Spanish by then. So. Right. After your 
third trip, fourth trip to uh, yeah <laughs> to Monterey. Okay. Yep. Uh, so I uh, yeah. So I spent a lot of time in uh, down south, uh, in Colombia in particular. Colombia, our mission was to protect the judges. Uh, they were and to train their judicial police to protect the judges because they were getting killed on a rate of about one a week. Yeah. Uh, that was a time when any judge that was really a judge, they would try to eliminate. Yeah, them. exactly. Uh, so they asked me to put together a team to go down there and train their people and in the meantime do some security surveys, try to figure out how to harden their, uh, their houses, their offices, and so forth. Um, so I put together a team. I had three former Secret Service guys, which was my biggest mistake, and three, <laughs> uh, three SF guys. So off we went to Columbia. And we're trying to train these guys. And the Secret Service guys, their idea of a motorcade is at least four limousines and a chase car. Right. These guys are taking a bus to work. (laughs) Really? (laughs) Yeah, it didn't really work well. No. So we fought that battle over and over again. I won. Uh, But they... uh, we uh, we would go into their houses and we'd tell them these are the things you need to look for, these are the signs, uh, and oh by the way, that propane tank that you have sitting out there in front of your house, very conveniently located, with the nozzle going through the fence, so that when they fill the propane up, they don't have to go into your yard. Oh yeah. <laughs> Slap me a charge on that, and I'll take out the block. Oh, yeah. Uh, they, uh, <laughs> that's the kind of thing we had to deal with. When we first got there, State Department said, okay, we've got a vehicle for you. Oh, a vehicle. Okay. So they took us out to this old suburban, uh, and it's seen its better days, and it's the old-style suburban where you didn't have fuel injection. Uh, it's carburetor. Now, you're at 6,000 feet right. in Bogota. Uh, that thing had a top speed of about 20 miles an hour. So, no, I don't think we're going to take that. So what we did is take taxis. We'd go to a different place, yeah. different different place, uh, split up, take a taxi, take it to wherever we were going, join back up at that point, take taxis from there. We were just, you know, everybody thinks of South America and Mexico, unless you've actually been there, as being typical swarthy uh, complexion. Colombia, a lot of times you can't tell the difference between an American and a Colombian. No kidding. Uh, oh, yeah. There's okay. lots, lots of German immigrants. There's sure. lots, of, lots of French. Uh, so we were just one more person in a taxi. Uh, so we uh, so never never had an issue. Blended right in. Yeah. Uh, no <laughs> problem. There was one incident. I had uh, DOS was their equivalent of the FBI and the CIA altogether. Mm-hmm. Uh, Department Administrativo. Uh, they uh, and they had a building that, that was their headquarters. Uh, it was all glass. Uh, it was about eight stories tall, and it was in the middle of a parking lot. Uh, where people could drive up any time, any day. So I did my study on this, and I said, the first thing you got to do is to either get rid of these windows or put at least put mylar on them 
So when they come out, they'll come out in one piece. If you get an explosion the way they are, they're going to be missiles that are going to cut you to pieces. Oh, yeah. Oh, yes, yes, yes. We will do this. We will do this. And then I said, and the next thing you need to do is shut that parking lot. Don't let any vehicle come in there that is not authorized. Yes, yes, that will be harder, but we will do that. So I'm going back out there for my final uh, final session with them and in a, in a cab. And this cab driver has taken me every detour that you can think of in Bogota, running up his tab. Yeah, of course. Uh, so, <clears throat> And I'm browbeating him. God damn it, I've got a meeting out here, in Spanish, of course. Yeah, yeah. I got a meeting out here, I got to be at that, and he just looks in the rear view and grins and <laughs> takes another detour. <laughs> well, we get about two blocks away from Das, and the world goes, boom. Oh. Uh, and I knew what had happened, uh, and there was no question about it. They had pulled a bus, school bus, into that parking lot filled with info and had blown it. Whoa. Killed 80-some people in the building, wounded practically everybody, most of it from flying glass. No the kidding. crater from that thing was uh, about 30 feet deep. I'll tell you how out of force that thing was. 30 feet. Yep. So I jumped out of the cab and gave him the best tip that he probably ever had. Every peso I had. You were happy to be late. Oh, yeah. I was real happy because if he'd got oh. me there on time, I'd have been in that parking lot. Oh, my God. Uh, so I'm up there waiting in blood, coming up over my shoes, trying to trying to help people. Yeah. Uh, and uh, it just it was horrific. It was the medical skills, medic skills, had they kicked in? Oh, they came right in? back in, yeah. High gear. Yeah. Wow. Okay. So going along, at some point, um, you turn into an author. Yes. What What the What sparked this? I've always wanted to be an author. Is that right? Even, uh, in, even uh, out there, was, the dirt was, forums of Oklahoma. When you I was eight about? years old, I was writing pornographic novels for my schoolmates. <laughs> I didn't know anything about it. Yeah, of course. But I had a good imagination. <laughs> uh, Fertile. <laughs> But, went, uh, but then, of course, life uh, intruded, and I always wanted to write, and I'd jot down things from here and there. And, of course, I had plenty of time in Saudi Arabia, so I wrote my first very failed novel there. And reading it a few years later, I realized why I was failed. Oh, God, that's terrible. <laughs> <laughs> so you're self-taught. You don't go out and no. talk to award-winning authors and say, hey, I got this great idea. You just, like... Typical SF fashion, let's just jump into this. Just jump into it. I see something like this book. Uh, I'm driving along, and we would, instead of elephant grass, we've got Johnson grass there in Oklahoma. Okay. I'm driving along, and it's the same effect. That Johnson grass is waving in that wind, uh, and it just brought back those memories so sharp. And we're but talking I, about days of fire? Yep. Indeed, so, we read uh, from earlier. So I had to, I just had to get it down on paper. So I wrote the first chapter, and then I thought, ah, this is shit. So uh, sometime later, uh, they're having a having a convention in D.C., and Mark Barrett's there, and you know Mark is quite a successful author. And I was telling him about this story, and he said, uh, hey, you're no judge of your own writing. Uh, clean it up a little bit, send it to this guy, and see what he thinks. That guy, Jim Morris. No. Yeah, he was at that time. He was uh, at uh, Pocket Books, 
so after a tour of duty with Soldier of Fortune magazine. No, it was before that. Before way, Soldier of yeah, Fortune. Okay. Before that. Yeah. Yeah. The and, really young Jim Morris. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I don't think he'll ever die. Uh, he uh, he sends me a message back. Says we like this. Show us the rest of it. I'm thinking, oh shit! Now I got to write the rest of it. <laughs> oh, that problem. <laughs> so I wrote it. Uh, they uh, they published it, and uh, then I've been writing ever since. And Jim had at least two or three books from Vietnam as a Green Beret. Yep. And just just quality stuff. No. Oh, yeah. Yeah. He could, the man can write. Anyway, so all right, so. You get going with the writing, and then you and I were at a shot show. Gosh, what five, six years ago? Mm-hmm. And you were you had another business you were running at the time, because you'd done a few along the way as you're writing, and um, book sales were successful. You had a name, and people kept asking me, "Hey, do you know John Moles? Well, yeah, yeah. We never served together, but yeah, I know. <laughs> Because at some point you got involved with Soldier of Fortune for a no. little while, magazine too, or that I, just for well, your writing? that was that's a story in itself. <laughs> Robert K. Brown. I had yeah, I've known Robert for many years before, uh, but uh, he uh, they sold the the video rights for Soldier of Fortune to Hollywood, right? Uh, and they made two two years of uh, of the Soldier of Fortune. Uh, series right uh and he i got asked if i would like to from a producer i got asked if i would like to send in some ideas so yeah i'll send in some ideas sure. so i shipped them to them and they got they got on air uh there for a couple of them paid good and i got residuals for years uh, but then they sold the rights for video games to activision Activision, I wanted to do a game on right. Soldier of Fortune. So I get a call on that. Uh, we know your background. We've heard about you. Would you come up here and give us some technical advice on this? I said, are you going to pay me? And they said, yes. I said, well, you got your answer. <laughs> <laughs> so I go up go up to, uh, go up to their developers, yeah. and uh, we work for a while and uh, sort of hit it off with the guys and you know, gave them some scenarios and told them some things that were just egregiously wrong in their weapons handling. <laughs> Got some of it through, some of it not. Yeah. yeah. Uh, then I go back home, uh, counting my dollars, and lo and behold, about uh, a week later, I get another call and I said, uh, we need a hero for Soldier of Fortune. Can we use your name and face? I said, same question as before. <laughs> <laughs> Pay me, yes. <laughs> Pay me. Indeed. So I became, the, I became, or I got killed by several million teenage boys <laughs> in the Soldier of Fortune game. Oh, there you were really dead in the game. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> and you lived to talk about it. I lived to talk about it. <laughs> Oh, I've forgotten about that. <laughs> yes, back in the day. Yep. Wow. <laughs> Been a long, strange trip. Indeed. So you started cranking out the books, and now we have a total of 14 written. Two are still waiting to yep. go through the editing process itself. Yeah. And you've got 12 out there. And uh, amongst them, we have um, 
North Fork, Devil's Canyon, uh, Boys d'Arc. Oh, listen, Bois d'Arc, Bois d'Arc. Oh, is that what it is? Oh, you, you French guys. <laughs> and of course, now we got one in Spanish, Rancho Mala Suerte. Mala Suerte. Mala Suerte. And now in English again, Al Creek. So these are just some of the books that you've been putting together. And uh, it's interesting. Who was one of your lead characters for your book down in Texas there? Uh, he is the lead character also in Days of Fire. Uh, oh, okay. Who uh, ran into some issues with the army so he, after uh, after the <laughs> next book uh, in that particular issue which is napalm dreams mm -hmm. uh, he uh, ran into some issues with the army so he leaves the army and becomes a soldier for hire sound familiar does indeed <laughs> where's robert k brown when we need him <laughs> <laughs> so uh so uh, somewhere along the way i thought you know, this is a good character. I'm going to put him into an impossible situation. So he goes back to the old family farm in Oklahoma. Uh, they talk him into becoming a sheriff. Now, here's a special operations guy who is, his methods may not exactly fit what they teach in police academy. <laughs> if the, first of all, make it easy. Did any of his methods fit? No, the police academy. <laughs> <laughs> but it's carried through seven books now, or six books. I'm wow, working on five books. I'm working on a sixth one now. There we go. Wow, no kidding. What's his name of your lead character? James Carmichael. Okay. Whew. It's a nom de plume that I used many times. You always, if you've got to use another name, make sure that you start with the same letter that right. your own name is. Because <laughs> if you don't, your your name is John, and you George is, is your cover name. Indeed. Hey George, and you look at him like what? <laughs> uh, so that was the fiction route, but a lot of the fiction is is uh, inter intertwined. I I with always your time do. On the all of the books in here are based on a crime that actually happened. Uh, and how he solved them is rather unique. All right. Well, very good. We're at that point where maybe we might be heading down the end of the trail here. Would there be uh, any final thoughts or moments in the life of John F. Mullins I, besides being married 60 years ago to this lovely nurse that's still like the primo act of your life and a little time of service to God and country? Anything else you wanted to uh, expound upon before we uh, turn off the tape recorder? I'm working now in the arms and ammunition industry. Uh, in, in your spare some, time, in my spare time. Oh, good. <laughs> and working on uh, working on things that are innovative. Uh, I invented frangible ammunition, God, twenty five years ago. And for again, for some of the young people that listen to our our tapes and to the uh, podcast, frangible ammunition is different from old fashioned bullets. How? It uh, disintegrates on impact with any hard surface. So there is no ricochet, no splashback. Uh, it enables you to train at ranges that are almost face-to-face. -face. On demonstrations, I shoot it with the gun two inches away. You wow. try to do that on a, try to do that with a regular sure. uh, bullet, and you're going to be wearing pieces of that for longer than I did, wearing all the pieces from <laughs> the explosion. And again, so like if law enforcement goes into a room and they open fire, 
if if they miss the target but it hits the wall, it dissolves as opposed to going through the wall and killing Aunt Millie over killing, next door. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Nothing like losing Aunt Millie on a firefight. Yeah, don't want to do that. Yeah, Not it's good. it's mostly for training because to me, unless you live fire train, Dang. you're not really training. Sure. Uh, and you see that all the time. You see people out on a range, uh, and they're t- trying for accuracy, and that's all well and good. But until you go through a door and know that there's somebody on the other side that is more than happy to take you out, uh, you really don't, most law enforcement don't have that tool. Right. And they don't have it because they don't have the training facilities. With this, as an example, I, uh, I had my manufacturing operation set up in an old B-52 base. Uh, and on that base was a, where they kept the bombs. Uh, two-story building, stairwells on both sides, concrete block uh, building. Made it ideal for clearing rooms. Uh, so I put steel on the walls. We used steel targets inside. Uh, but you could go in there and shoot in any direction. That bullet wasn't coming out of there because once it hit something hard, it's gone. It doesn't exist anymore. And you knew if you're on target or not. Yeah. Uh, so that way you can actually train realistically because unless you're training with live fire, it's all an arcade game. Yeah, because that's even something that uh, Jocko Willink has talked about and others for making law enforcement training more realistic yes, today. Absolutely. Particularly now that law enforcement finds itself being targeted by the radicals in our country that are running about the streets a lot more than we've seen ever in our history, I think. Oh, God, it's, it's, it boggles the mind. It yeah. does, indeed. And then uh, any other uh, careers in between all of these before we wrap well, up here? Go down and yeah, please. I, uh, I, was, uh, I was up in Washington doing some things. And <laughs> <laughs> this and is Washington State. <laughs> Yes. Yeah. Uh, uh, they well, actually, I was in Macedonia. Uh, done a little project there, and I saw 9/11 happening on the monitors in Athens, and I Ooh. thought, Oh, Jesus Christ! I got to get back to the states. Yeah. So I made it as far as London, and an old MI5 guy, a friend of mine, because uh, <laughs> I can't go any further, he takes me in and feeds me enough scotch to keep me from. <laughs> keep from going complete batch yet. Yeah, yeah. Uh, so I head on uh, back to the States and uh, get get that call. And away I go, and I wander around the stands for a while. Is that right? <laughs> <laughs> Did you run into Billy Wall when you were over there? Oh, yeah. <laughs> of course. Yeah. Billy was working for the ground group for the agency. Indeed. Yeah. And so you, you were working for another agency we can't or can't talk uh, it about. Was, uh, it, it was for the, for the agency, but it was under a different color. Indeed. Yeah. Billy Wall is just one of our SF legends. Yeah. And uh, he's now 92 down there camping out Hampley in the Tampa Bay area. Oh, is he? Oh, yes, uh, sir. Good. I yeah. hope he lives forever. He probably will probably bury all of us. <laughs> Not <laughs> no, me. Billy. No. Not me. I have a goal. Is that right? What's that goal? My goal is to live long enough to piss off generations yet unborn. There we go. <laughs> all right. Well, on that note, any final closing thoughts? Sir? <laughs> no, I think we've covered just about everything. <laughs> that was uh, that's a pretty good closing line. I may have to borrow that one just to live long enough to piss off generations that haven't been born yet. I like that. <laughs> 
So anyways, we as we wrap up here, <clears throat> we definitely want to thank, uh, again, Jocko Willink Productions, his team, with Echo Charles, and uh, for making this uh, podcast possible. And uh, you see there's no advertising. Again, thank you to Jocko. And we thank, uh, today, we thank the military, the first responders, Border Patrol, those who protect our country, and, and for all the law enforcement on the street, we continue to pray for your safety. And during these difficult times, we hope that the training will be there to help improve it. And uh, we also want to thank the men and women who are serving uh, in the years past. There are heroes that are like John Mullins here with us today. And, of course, we also remember and salute the men and women who were not able to come home, who have not been able to come home and uh, are missing an accident today. The Vietnam War alone, we still have 1,583 Americans still missing an accident from the Vietnam War in Southeast Asia. And the way things are going is we doubt that many more will be returned or repatriated. So we thank, again, Jocko, his team, for making this podcast possible. And with that, we close. God bless America. Amen. Amen. So, um, perfect. Yeah, leave it on, and then you and I will just jump right in. We'll okay. do. We're going to do a post analysis. Oh, okay. If you want to hit the head for a minute, then check with Charlene. We're going to have to download these. You got to leave, right? I we can get them. We can push over the computer for you. Yeah. Okay. Do that. Yeah. Okay. So unless you're in a hurry. Nope, um No hurry. What time is it? Oh, it's 105 already. We're at uh, two hours and 14 minutes. Really? Okay. <laughs> wow. No kidding. That's a good one. Yeah. Oh, it's great, John. Really Thank is. You. Thank you. So we do a little postscript. Mm-hmm. And then if you, um, and then I've got to, I'll show him my computer. And then maybe I can run you back and we can get Charlene and get you all. And we'll figure we're going to eat lunch. Sound like a plan. It'll take two seconds to get it on the computer. It okay. shouldn't take too long. All right. And then uh, the sound, at least. Yeah, sound. Then we got one. Uh, we got two chips in the computer. I got a yeah. little, a little hoozy jiggy stick it in, and we stick it into my Mac, and we'll download it from there. Yeah, we'll see how big that card is. Yeah. All right. So let us do our postscript, and then uh, we're going to work a little bit around this up. You can see if. Yeah, I know my your legs. Be ready. <laughs> I need more on my ass. <laughs> And uh, if there's anything else you need, feel free to help yourself. And uh, you can sit here or go on down, whatever you want to do. You can hear what we're going to do. Maybe a little later. I'm going to think about doing podcasts on my own. Sure. Because, uh, you know, if you go to Jocko on his podcast, on his website, he has a whole click about how you do your own podcast. Hmm. But we'll talk more about that later. Hmm. So let me and Chad do our things so then me and Chad can do our things before we do our things. Does that make sense? Do more things and things. If you see my dog, kick it. Say no. Hi. Okay, got it. No, I'm sorry. Okay. Okay. You there, John? Yes, sir. How we doing? Good. All right, Echo. We're teaming up here for the postscript. Well, welcome back. Uh, John Mullins has left the building. He's on his way back to Oklahoma. And today, our technical technical expert from the 101st Airborne, Chad, is with us. Use Chad, it loosely. 
Indeed, but uh, still, you're still jumping out of planes <laughs> in your spare time. But uh, John Mullins, you're familiar with our podcast, and having heard this story, what's your first reaction? Well, once again, wow. As, oh, yeah. as with most of them, all of them, I say most, like some are bad. <laughs> no, all of them are good. And this just is another good one. Just Poor, another good one. Great stories. The I, whole thing with it, with the, and, um, man, my, from our side, I learned stuff about the Phoenix Project mm-hmm. that I never knew. Yeah. And I we heard about PRU, P-R-U, which is their action arm. And uh, just amazing guy. It's, it's so still around awesome. to talk about it. Yeah. He's yeah. got a great sense of humor, too. Oh yeah, <laughs> he's got a great sense of humor. Yeah, <laughs> it's a uh, it's awesome. Like I said last time I was here, it's great to see this talking about history. You know the things that have happened, sure, in the past, and and getting that that personalized kind of you know the putting the face to it, right? Absolutely, all the things you hear and you know and weeding out the bullshit because sometimes there's some you know they report the bullshit. <laughs> Yeah, John laid it down. He 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 cleared up some things on some stuff. I thought he cleared up a lot of things, yeah. particularly with uh, there been so what little's been written is usually bad or just yeah. flat wrong, yeah, or both. It's understandable he doesn't like journalists. Indeed, you notice that. <laughs> yeah, we had that first hint. Yeah, <laughs> uh, two journalists were killed. Then, hmm, okay, we'll just move right along here. <laughs> it's good it's good man I, I love coming out here and doing this unfortunately your, your regular guy couldn't make it and i got to do it again it's yeah. great i get an early listen to the podcast I get our to original secret agent man is busy secret agent indeed tom the terrific so um the what what about it from your perspective of having heard some of the other sodcasts John's stories are like each guy's story is so unique. Yeah. And from your side, because you've seen or heard some of these now, they uh, what's your final impression on that? Well, I, I know a few of you guys. Yeah. You guys, quotes, right? <laughs> uh, and one thing that I we noticed. We met on the firing range. Yeah, the commonality, I think, amongst all of you guys. Everybody has a unique story, but I think there's one commonality amongst it, and that is the. The, the quality of man, the the, the the type of person that they are. Yeah. I don't know the right words to use for that, but uh, you listen to them. They were in the moment. They were just doing what they had to do to complete the mission. Indeed. You know, and the, that is, that's the one thing that I kind of get out of most of that. I hear your stories and I hear, you know, uh, John Plasser's when I was here for John's and, and your other guests on your other podcasts. It's, it's, and John's today, it's they're just doing their stuff, man. They're just doing oh, their yeah. thing, and and they were in the moment. Like, it's my job right now, but it's not my life. John said that earlier. I don't, I can't remember how he worded it, but he was yeah. like, uh, he wasn't supposed to go out on the missions right. with them. Yeah, but he's like, he did. That's I got ten years, and this is my job. It's not my life. Is kind of how he said it. I don't remember exactly, oh, yeah. but. But again, he, he was a better kick, Go ahead and kick me ground. out. Yeah, sure. Yeah, go ahead and kick me out. This is and then his stories of a medic. You know, after yeah. that, after that ambush, yeah. the triage, going through that, yeah, patching people up and deciding, well, he's yeah. too far gone. I just can't even imagine being a medic like that. The medics, I, you got to give them props. I mean, because not only 
as with most of the guys on a team, you know, that you you do you're dual rolling. You're dual rolling. You're sure. always dual rolling. You got your primary what your mission is, right? But you also got your secondary stuff that you gotta do, your your medics and your camo guys and just how the well oiled machine and how it works together in the end and and the medics though, man, you gotta give them credit because they gotta really deal with some Oh yeah. And our SF mags is just continue to amaze me from day yeah. one yeah and yeah. i just knew like like I told john in the beginning it's like i knew i couldn't be a medic <laughs> that was i just wasn't i couldn't do the scholastics let alone all the I, I don't think guts. i could have done it either yeah i would have got kicked out of i would have i would have got kicked out of combo and then got kicked out of medic <laughs> yeah indeed. yeah <laughs> well because that's where john and i were different in that I knew I couldn't do medic, so I went to combo. He went to combo, knew he couldn't do it, hated yeah. it, became a medic. And yeah. just like, oh, just became a medic. And then goes to language school for Russian, Spanish, and French. Yeah. Okay. Great, great men. That's that's the oh, yeah. that's the one thing that I noticed. Is well, we're going to continue to keep this uh, to keep this going. So thank you for filling in today, sir. We appreciate it. And again, as we said earlier in our closing, we thank um, Jocko and Echo his team for making all this possible and uh please feel free to if you just google jocko willink you will have other programs that he does and for our programs you uh for the audios that are posted you can go to spotify yeah. or uh apple podcast and you type in sogcast and they'll pop up and now we have posted so far 17 audio of the interviews and the first three YouTube uh, productions have been posted on YouTube. And um, we've had a lot of positive feedback from that. And as we close out again, we always thank our service members today that protect our country, particularly during these political times. The Being in the military is uh, probably uniquely more stressful than any time in recent years. And uh, we pray for them, the safety of our service members, for our first responders all in the hospitals on the front lines for we've seen some odd challenges that they've come up against border patrol and law enforcement in general no matter what's the sheriff's department local police department anywhere around the world that are there to keep law and order when we have forces that are trying to tear apart our country through through other means that are not respecting law and order so we have a final salute to them and again, to the uh, missing in action, who didn't come home, who couldn't come home, hopefully someday they will be repatriated. On that, thank you, sir. God bless America. Till next time. At Parker, our purpose is simple. We want to make the world a better place. By working more efficiently. By using more sustainable practices. By developing better technologies. We keep moving forward. With each new idea, innovation, and partnership, we're one step closer to fulfilling our purpose every single day. To find out more, visit parker.com slash purpose. Parker, engineering your success.
Cashback is not available on gas in New Jersey and Wisconsin. Hey, good morning. You're heading to the airport, right? Yep, thanks for checking. I like the car. How long have you been a rideshare driver? About three years now. I really enjoy it. Isn't it hard to make money these days with the price of gas being so high? Not for me. I use Upside, the free app that gives you cash back for every gallon of gas you buy. Wait a minute. Are you saying you actually get real money back when you get gas with the Upside app? Yep, I get real cash back every time I get gas. Does that actually add up to anything? I'll make around $200 to $300. Wow, that's serious extra cash. I'm downloading the Upside app now. Download the free Upside app now to earn real cash back every time you buy gas. Use promo code CAR for an extra 25 cents a gallon bonus on your first tank. You can cash out anytime right to your bank account, PayPal, or a gift card for Amazon and other brands. Just download the free Upside app and use promo code CAR for a 25 cents a gallon bonus on your first tank. That's code CAR.